Welcome, everybody, to the Cult of Dave Podcast Network. New chapter this morning in the battle against Ebola. Nickelback are back. The multi-platinum band has just announced a new album and a North American summer. Until you see the flaming bottle, you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, let me tell you what, kids. Pack it up and go home because what you're listening to now is the most handsome man in the underground today. Woo! Something good for you. everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the something good for you podcast where the two of us sift through the bullshit to try to find a little something good to give you each and every single week i am one of your two co-hosts alex stiff and across from me is the basis extraordinaire himself kicking ass last night captain nun oh well thank you (laughs) (laughs) you had y'all you had all the ladies staring at you like a bassist had women staring at him uh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't have a response to that one. Because his fly was down. <laughs> That's totally what it was. And with us, I am proud to say that we have the Mad Brother Ward himself, Russ Ward, guitarist of Annie's Scene and father of Cody Ward, which he was on a few episodes ago. So we've got bringing in the whole family here. So welcome, Russ. Thank you so much for coming on in. Is this like reverse nepotism? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I've always had it in my head because you've been asking me for a little bit you know when are you going to get me on the show I'd like to you know be on I'll do one if you want me to I've kind of had it in my head where I've had like a list and a way I wanted to go about things see, so the social to... hierarchy put me dead last <laughs> <laughs> your son got a little bit of top billing first hey, I, I'm, I'm totally cool with that <laughs> I wanted to get him in they're the happening thing <laughs> well, Russ you were doing podcasts long before we were ever uh, doing anything like this too Oh, we to, did uh, the Possum Pit. Yeah, we did. We just did a few of those, and um, that was really kind of, I think, more of an experiment to see what we could do and how we could do it. And then um, that was that was Jeff Williams's thing, and um, we need to get him on too and do a Possum oh, yeah. Pit re- resurgence. <laughs> yeah, he um, he really did a good job putting that together, and um, I enjoyed it. We just, I think, his his job kind of ate up the time that he had to do that stuff with fair enough and so it just kind of stopped yeah that'll do it and that's one of the reasons why uh the band that i play bass with him and biggie stardust we just hadn't even done shows you know hell we have recordings that hadn't really been released yet <laughs> just in the can right now the uh girl you gotta go and all that yeah yeah i think it's, it's on like soundcloud or something but it never got like an actual release Right. Oh, well. This show is also brought to us by Repo Record down on Commonwealth Avenue, and you can check them out on Instagram at Repo Record. Jimmy's always posting his new releases and Record Store Day stuff. He's really getting better at that. Congratulations, dude. You're really pumping it out there. I like that. You can also check them out at their website, www.reporecord.com. I know, Russ, you are an avid vinyl collector. Mm, that was Used just- to be. Yeah. I was just there uh, yesterday, and uh, he had a copy of uh, Kiss Alive with the booklet. And I don't have a copy of it with the booklet, so I just picked that up, and it was just re- it was really reasonably priced too. So 
Good quality uh, vinyl, too. And actually, thanks to you, I was nerding with him because I was like, let me see the label. Yeah, go look at the label. <laughs> Which Casablanca <laughs> press was this? Because, yep. man, you really turned me on to all that because, to me, a record was a record. But you had a bunch of copies of Kiss records. Well, that's, the, that's sort of the stuff I get kind of nerdy about. And Kiss in particular is just real nerdy with every version of their pressing anyway. Um, or at least with collectors. Well, the thing about Kiss records is that they're not worth anything. And the reason why they're not really worth anything is because their record company pressed so much of it. In the, and a in lot the of day. it was sold, too. Well, no. Back in the day, well, yeah. I mean, the, what they did was they would press, uh, you know, by the time they were rolling, Casablanca would press a million copies up front and ship them to distributors. And that counted as, a, a, in, in the RIAA, they would count that as a million seller just the, the, even though it hadn't literally there. sold the record and so that's how they got all these platinum awards back in the day even though their records really didn't sell like they that. just had to reach to get that many people well what, that's all it took back then well i mean they got it to the distributors that was what it was okay and and that's the reason why you find so many kiss records with the little cutout on them the, yeah. the dog ear cut and stuff because they would get to return those records at full cost and that's what nearly killed casablanca and there's a whole book on that too, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. And they just and the joke was, you know, that Cosmolica would ship platinum but get returned gold. Yep. <laughs> I was actually just trying to think of that because I remember you you were one of the first people that brought that sort of thing to my attention. And yeah. And because of that, I would actually go on message boards and websites and stuff and look up like my serial numbers and everything just to figure out what pressing it was. And I was having the well, hardest time figuring his out because it was really thin. It seemed like a Columbia House record. Because correct me if I'm wrong, those. Um, places you'd send off the money and they ship yeah, you records. Yeah, you, you, you get you you know you. It was like you know send us a dime and we'll send you ten records or yeah. something. And then they had you're on the hook to buy one more record. Yeah, <laughs> at like, full price, whatever it was. Every I think a lot of people. I, I guess they don't do this for your your generation, but well, this was they, a thing. It'd be in the though, Sunday Circular every week, and you know you get suckered in and you'd send your dime and. Well, see, they started doing that. I at least remember as a kid, they do that with the CDs. Send okay. in a dollar, well, okay. and then yeah, we'd yeah. give you like Same 10 thing. CDs yep, kind yep, of yeah, thing. Yeah, I remember. Actually, I remember that now. Yeah, definitely not with vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> but the Kiss records, yeah, they're really not worth anything unless they have the goodies inside because they were like, you know, Cracker Jack. They, had the, they always were smart enough to stuff little goodies inside the records. And those are the things that like the, uh, give it any value. Like the one that I always think of is uh, my best friend's dad had uh, from back home had the Kiss Alive Press with uh, the booklet and the application to join the Kiss Army. Yeah, you, those in um, Kiss Alive 2 had the wet and stick uh, tattoos. Mm -hmm. That's right. The and tattoos. if you can find a sheet of those, I mean, that's impossible to find hardly. You know, um, Love Gun had a little pop gun and it. it was like a paper pop gun. It was a cardboard thing and then you snap it and the word bang like would pop out on a piece of paper. And one of the little known ones, and I remember it being one of your bucket list items for a long time, was the album before that, Rock and Roll Over, actually did have an insert at one time. They had the sticker. Mm -hmm. It's like a, and it was a cut sticker. And Rock and Roll Over also has a, um, or, uh, I think it was RCA Record Club, going back to these record club things, they had a misprint cover, and it appears that Paul Stanley has a teardrop coming we out. We were talking about that yesterday, too. I always look for that anytime I see a copy of I looked for that thing over. for years, and then, see, I, I, being a nerd, I, I find this record sometimes, and I'll like, that's, that's like my favorite record probably of all time. It's my favorite. And, 
I have like six copies of it. It's my favorite one of uh, all the deep cuts, or at least my favorite collection of deep cuts. Yeah, and I have the guitar tones. Yeah, I think it's their best sounding record. And I had like six copies of it or something, and I was going through them about a year ago, and I realized I had I'd been looking for years for this teardrop cover, right? Right. <laughs> And I've had it all along and didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah, the only like, copy I have is the teardrop. Yeah, but that's an RCA record club. Yep. That's not, you know, so that's that's just an anomaly exclusive to that one press of it. Like, yeah. Is there any other band that has this much, like, lure over the, the pressings as I, Kiss I'm sh- does? I'm probably so. The thing about Kiss is they get so much grief and so much criticism for being cartoony and being overtly promoted, but they are no more cartoony than the Beatles or the no. or the or the or the Ramones certainly. Right. And they weren't no more overtly promoted than the Beatles for sure, or the Grateful Dead for that matter. There's nothing that Kiss has that the Grateful Dead doesn't have. Oh yeah, even if it was unintentional, the Grateful Dead became a brand. Well, all bands unintentionally become a brand. It's it's just it's a, what happens when you stick around. That's long the enough. business end of music business. And, yeah. You know, I just don't pay much attention to that stuff. The thing about Kiss that makes them so shitty now is that they're shitty. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just the truth of it. I, you know, they just uh, stuck around too long at they, the party. They stuck way too long. It's it's very odd. I've received a lot of different musical inspirations from different people throughout the years, but my musical knowledge and the way I look at things has probably been most shaped by you. Oh, dear because God. Because if we're, if we're going to continue on the path of Kiss, well, something that you told me that kind of struck me in an odd way when I was younger and then really made sense and stuck with me, and you went, first album... To, I think you said like Unmasked or Dynasty, whatever you're like, that's Kiss with a capital K I S S. You said everything after Lick It Up is K lowercase I S S. That's fucking brilliant. That's the truth of it. I mean, you know, but every band has, you know. If you stick around the, long enough, you're going to have peaks and valleys. Well, yeah, and every band generally has a five year stretch where they're going to do their best, most potent stuff. And that doesn't necessarily disqualify whatever they do outside of that but i can't think of any band that doesn't fall in that kind of uh paradigm where it's five years you're gonna have your best most potent you know defining stuff and and really think about it who can you think of that has had i mean anybody i i usually it's the first five years sometimes for some bands it's the second five years but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been sitting yeah. here just kind of you know, rolling through some of my favorite bands, and every band I can think know, of just has like that little stretch. Three or four records in a row that are your favorite yeah. from a certain time period. Yep. It, it just sort of works that way, and I, you know, and it just it depends how they how they fall together and when they start firing on all cylinders. And then you find like little things that you like about certain eras, even if it's only a few. And, and they may have consistently good stuff for their whole run, but. You know, you can still kind of trace it down to a, like, well, their best stuff, though, is this period, you know? Mm-hmm. Weird, and but- I think that also just happens, though, with bands that stick around long enough to where you can go, this certain era does, because those earlier times are hungry. Like, yesterday, when we were just kind of chilling, getting ready for the show, I put on um, Dress to Kill. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is one of my favorites to kind of revisit, because... 
if you put yourselves in their mind frame when they recorded this record, they were in desperation mode. This is their third album in two years. They're broke. Neil Bogart is forcing himself as producer. That's because he going, didn't want to pay for a producer. Exactly, because they were running out of money. They had no yeah. money. So it's like, and put the, yourselves in those shoes and listen to the lyrics of that song, like Rock Bottom. It's like, that wasn't them pandering. That was Paul singing from the heart. Well, you know? Probably so, but I think that record, I mean, if you look at it also, that one particularly, uh, they're all short songs. They're all two and a half minute songs. They're even really scrape- tailoring that for radio. And even scraping back and pulling out Wicked Lester songs. We, she and Love Are All I Can. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but those were the, you that. know, she's the longest song on their album. But, um, you know all those songs you listen to them they're very they're kind of i mean to me that's like a proto-punk record i think it's the missing link between like dictators go girl crazy and the first ramones album right if the new york dolls were, see that. Good, were actual good musicians that's what they would sound like I well think. i mean i think that it, it, i don't think it has even so much to do with musicianship it's just you know it was I always I always use the word proletariat you know i mean it's common you know teenage american rock and roll yeah it's really basic and it's accessible they weren't trying to be um virtuosos they weren't trying to do you know eric clapton or whatever they were consciously trying to to be a hard rock version of the beatles a straight yeah a hard rock version of the beatles i don't think they were even a heavy metal band per se and i know um i think it was uh i agree with that simon from the commonwealth once made a comment how the image didn't match their music and it confused them. Morgan has actually said the exact same thing. But and this was in the early seventies when nobody was doing that. Well, at the that, same yeah, time. and I get that, and I thought you know that was when when Simon told me that I was like you know that makes a lot of sense. I never thought of it that way because I grew up with it, but you know coming in, I, I turned it going. I had the same reaction with Alice Cooper. It took me a long time to get Alice Cooper. Me too, because the imagery didn't match the music to me, especially the early records. And yeah, and that the schools out was what did it. We when Alice kind of made his comeback in the late '80s, and uh, we picked up schools out. And you know, you get onto that second side, and you get into, you know kind of the deep end of that mm-hmm. and it's got a like horn section and it almost sounds like <laughs> almost like you know disco in a weird way you know and uh now i love that that's like probably my favorite alice cooper record but at the time i'm going what the hell is this <laughs> you know i didn't get it at all back so, in the early 70s when you could just get away with anything well in a way yeah i think you had a lot more freedom i mean as far as uh what you could do back then i don't i don't know how that that falls out anymore as far as like a and r men and what the record companies expect out of a band or whatever but you know it certainly was a different era for sure and it's crazy to think about that sort of thing because just talking about the image not matching with the sound i would i would say you'd find a lot of that in the 70s because even because y'all mentioned new york dolls i would say even looking at that you wouldn't immediately think the music that they created right you see a bunch of dudes in drag well you know the dolls thing was so under the radar and the way i came to discover the dolls was the same way a lot of kids did in the 80s through the that 80s glam thing that you know there was a resurgence in that imagery and a lot of those bands would name check and reference the dolls right exactly but they didn't sound 
anything like the New York Dolls. All mm-hmm. those L.A. glam bands, you know, they might have wanted to look like the Dolls, but they all wanted to sound like Van Halen. <laughs> Van Halen and Hanoi Rocks. That was well, yeah. Hanoi Rocks was, you know, I think Hanoi Rocks LA shit was a sure. big influence on it. But you know, they didn't have that commercial. Uh, they were success. closer. They were closer to the Dolls than yeah. They were a lot more imitators. closer. Yeah, and I think we were a lot more sincere in their thing. Uh, but you know that was at that point. You know I grew up in that. That was when I was a teenager, and that was the stuff that turned me off on, you know, popular music and kind of drove me into the punk rock thing. I hear you. So even from just early on, you never went through that phase of just going and listening to the radio rock and then finding that you you found the deep stuff early. So so where did that even kind of come from? Uh, in what what way? So you were saying that, you know, just from an early age, you know, finding stuff like the dolls and everything. Well, I didn't know. find the dolls early. I, I uh, found them much later. Right. In fact, I found the whole punk rock thing pretty late. I, I did too, actually. I had a older brother that um, I would, you know, kind of siphon stuff from. Right. And then uh, once he kind of took off, he was kind of wild, you know, and he, he took off when he was about 15. So I would have been about, he's four years older than me, so I would have been about 11. So I was kind of on my own, and it would just be, you know, kind of floundering along trying to find whatever I thought, you know, I, whatever, you know, it, it is going to resonate with you at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly at that age for me, heavy metal, it was accessible, but that was the most accessible, rebellious music I could you know, and at that time period, into. it was what Dio and Judas Priest and all. Judas that. Priest was the big one for me. I, I still listen to Judas. Judas I, I like Judas Priest. I do too, and um, uh, that was the big one. I can remember in seventh grade, I just hit seventh grade, so that would have been the fall of '83. See, I was listening to all that stuff before 82? I was listening to punk rock too. I think it was fall '82. I don't remember now. I can't, I, it, you know, but it, I can remember a kid had an Iron Maiden t-shirt and that was the first time I'd ever heard of them. And just the imagery of it was just like, whoa, you know, <laughs> that's cool. And then, that but, but, but when I listened to them, it just didn't hit me. It didn't match again, going back to that imagery, not matching it. I mm. just thought they were goofy. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> like them. I, I thought just, you know, cause back then it was kind of like you was, you know, you either were a priest fan or a maiden fan. I was, gotcha. I, I was a priest fan. You know? <laughs> I think I like, priest. I used to like, like maiden a lot more than I like priest, but now I think it's the other way around. See, I, I think you can like both. And now, you know, I, there's things about Iron Man I appreciate, but uh, you know, again, this isn't stylistic, stylistically, my, my uh, go-to music, if that makes sense. I was listening to a lot of uh, set, we were talking about like what uh, you were listening to early on. Uh, when I was discovering Kiss, so through my best friend's dad, he was also introducing me to prog- prog rock bands from the seventies. Like I still listen to Yes and Rush and I, I had a uh, King Crimson a, and all that too. I had and a, Frank Zappa. <laughs> well, see, no, we had a Frank Zappa eight track when I was a kid, and that sounded like cartoon music to me. It was very cartoon music for it, the sake of being cartoon. Well, music, it though. had that. It, it was the Studio Tan album, which has Gregory Peckery on it. And I don't know right. if you're familiar with that, but you know, it's like a 20 minute song about a a pig. <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know, and when you're when you're like 10 or 11, it's it's a pretty clever little song. You, you oh, kind of yeah. you know, I was 12 or 11 discovering Joe's Garage and Titties mm, and Beer and yeah. all that too. <laughs> So that, but that was all. That was the extent of my Zappa. You know, I didn't have anything else. It was just because my brother had that eight track. Which I'm aging myself here. We had a bunch of eight tracks, and that was how I would listen to 
stuff that I'd otherwise not get exposed to. Yeah, I just liked weird music like that from the get-go. That's probably why I gravitated towards punk rock and from the studio. So with you were saying that's not really the style of music you listen to anymore, what was kind of that defining moment of like, oh, this is the shit I like. Not really interested in the metal as much anymore. Because you already said you'll revisit it. You didn't completely abandon it. No, but. I, I realized that, that what I was always into, I, you know, there's something about... I don't know what it is about kids, how they patch into what they patch into, but uh, just that kind of snarling, distorted guitar. Mm-hmm. And I think about, like, I turn you on to that song, Rockers and Rollers. I was going to bring that up a little bit later on. The, yeah, Brownsville the Station. Brownsville yep. Station. I love that fucking song. That whole record is my favorite record of theirs. I, I still vividly remember. I don't remember the location, like the name of the place, but... I remember the way it was laid out. We, uh, as soon as you walked in the front door, the records were in the front wall. Off to the right was the bedrooms. You and Andy were sharing a room at one point. No, we didn't share a room. We well, just... I mean, share, sharing a uh, house. Sorry. Yeah. Where I, I forget where that was, but we yeah, we were close. We weren't that close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember you going, "Have you heard of Brownsville Station?" My immediate response was like, "No." You're like, "You've heard smoking in the boys' room." I was like, "Yeah, yeah." You're like, "This is." Ten times better. I, like I that think, Motley Crue song. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember. I have no idea how we had the we had the seven inch for that. It was a single, and that was actually the flip side. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how we got it or why, but we had it. And as the song fades out, it's kind of going through the riff, you know, repeating, doing a turn around on that riff, and it sounded like to me. Now think about this. I was like five years old or something. And it sounded like to me he said something something along the lines of to the devil. To the devil. And I thought, man, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> devil corrupts again. And, and you know, it's like, how does that and then I, I, you know, I think about it now when I'm old, I'm going, What what is it about that? It resonates in a kid that that base instinct that man that's bad right oh, that's the bad guy I think it, I think it has to do I want to be our, that bad guy it's, it was for me it was ACDC and Black Sabbath well again <laughs> well, with what you're talking about with the times I mean that was a very especially here in the Carolinas a very Bible Belt community it had nothing to do with that though that that might have played into it if I were older it's just something instinctively in me you know he's saying something about the devil like. Yeah, you know, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Get you know, so I wouldn't say "fucking bells." <laughs> but later, when I was like in sixth grade, I was a latchkey kid. My parents got divorced. I ride the bus. I ride the bus home. Get home in the afternoon, empty house, and we didn't. We were pretty pretty poor, really, and. I think at that time my brother had already ran off, so I guess it was just me and my mom. And um, I would come home, and all my friends, you know, this was the advent of the video game. So, right, kids would go home and play their Ataris or ColecoVision or whatever mm-hmm. it was at that time, and we couldn't afford nothing like that. I would go home, and I would go to this console stereo we had in the front room. And a console stereo is is that. It looked like a big piece of furniture, mm-hmm. and you right. opened it up like almost like a coffin. Yeah, and your hi-fi would be down in it, you know. And your grandma probably had one, and you she probably had Percy Faith records in it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, 
we had the eight track player in it and I had uh, ACDC's high voltage and, nice. I, and I would, I would take a, a little vase that my mom had. It was like about maybe eight inches tall. It had a porcelain base, like a bulbous porcelain base with a brass stem. All right. Microphone. Stick a <laughs> stick a jump rope in it and it'd stuff it down in there and it'd get real and I'd swing it around <laughs> and sing along to the ACDC yes. thing wide open on that console stereo. You know, and this is sixth grade. And I, I look back and I realized, man, I was damaged. <laughs> oh, we had a little and, uh, and that line in uh, um, "Gonna be a rock and roll singer," right? He goes, he goes, star. you know, he says that line about, you know, you can stick your moral standards and all that and all the other shit <laughs> that they teach the kids in school. And man, I was just like, yeah. That's like ultimate Bon Scott track. I heard it pays well. Yeah. <laughs> and man, I was, I, 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 that was, that was, I, I think that probably had more of an impact on me at that age looking back than maybe even the Kiss records had. Even though, because Kiss was like, for my generation, that was like, you know, kind of, you know, the Marvel comics come to life playing rock and roll guitar. And, right. And that res- resounded in you in a, in a lot of different ways. I think kids that related to that in a big way tended to be more creative mm-hmm. and more imaginative. Because at that point also, because especially in 77, boom, Star Wars is on the scene Star Wars too. was a big part of that, that yeah. whole era. And I always responded. That's another thing. I responded to like... Anything that was Flash, like Star Wars, Kiss, Evil Knievel, mm-hmm. the Fonz, uh, you know, pro wrestling. Any, you know, anyone actually, that just seemed a little larger than anything life. Anything that was larger actually, than life that captured my imagination. You know, I could you know how Kiss got to a lot of people in West Tennessee where I grew up? Uh, late 90s pro wrestling. It's like really? Pro, yeah, the, yeah, it would pump the fuck out of Kiss music because, you know, the Kiss angle and the and pro wrestling angle is pretty similar as far as, you know, getting huh. perception. You That's know? interesting. Yeah, but what year would that have been? It would have been like uh, late 90s, 99. I was uh, going to say, didn't they, do, well, didn't they do that thing with like the demon or something in 99 and they played like God of Thunder? It, yeah, yeah they came and did that. That was the lowest rated uh, segment of... WCW wrestling really, history. Really, even lower than the Misfits one. Yeah, it was like the bottom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I love the Misfits, but I'll still put that I'll put that on right next to Glenn getting knocked out just to have a little laugh. But I grew up in West Tennessee, West Tennessee and their pro wrestling culture is just, hu- it's just huge right, in West right, Tennessee right. with Memphis and everything, too. Yeah, Memphis, too. yep. Yeah, I know. I, we can go into that if you want. <laughs> y'all, y'all have a wrestling have, moment, man. Nah, you're, you're, everyone I mean, listening will be like, oh, time to turn the channel. Well, I was, well, I was just always around for Look, it. this is our fucking show. They're, 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 already, they're already going, God damn it. Can they, can they come up with something else to talk about other than Kiss? Look, man, that's all answer, our friends are Kiss fans. The and answer they to that is no. And if you don't like it, you can call the fucking hotline, which is 513 463 7439 because we don't have any voicemails this week. I was about so, to ask. so we're going to keep talking kiss until enough of you fuckers call in and tell us to quit talking kiss and tell us something else to talk about. Otherwise, we're going to talk about the shit that makes us happy. Well, well we, were, we were getting into the ACDC there. I was, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, well, here, I'll do a hard shift for us since we've all been, we've really gotten to know your musical, where you've come from, and that mindset. 
Actually, back it up a little bit further. I'm jumping ahead. You lived in Virginia. We lived in Virginia. I moved from Roanoke, we, well, outside of Roanoke to outside of Norfolk. And um, that's a, I think that, I'm trying to think of the right word. It was an influential thing too, moving when you're like in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. It's a hard time to pick up and move and try to make new friends because it's already an awkward time anyway. And I think that kind of kept me from falling in with um, just your stereotypical mainstream kind of go with the flow kind of thing. Click. Yeah, yeah, I did. Right. And, and that's when I started developing my own attitude, my own outlook on stuff. Mm-hmm. And had we not done that, you know, who, who's to say I might have turned out to be a different person? I don't know. But, you know, I think that that had a big influence as far as just my, you know, just General moving, outlook. just moving yeah. did that. And then we moved again two years later and that's when we moved down here to Charlotte. Right. And, um, still hadn't discovered the punk rock thing yet. I was, you talk about like prog rock. I got big into the band Boston. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of a kid that I met that I, I fell in with these kids that were older and this guy was a big Boston fan. So, we were listening to a lot of that. This is before they made that third record that got real popular in the 80s. And I can remember I was trying to turn kids onto that. And I brought it. I had a copy of that first album. I brought it to school. And I remember this girl looks at it, and she sees their picture on the back cover. And, you know, it's got the drummer with the big afro. The big fucking pro. They all look like, you know, your typical 70s rock band with mustaches. Yeah, the, the, and beards. Yeah, they look, they, you know. And, and she looks at it, and she goes, Ew. I would never buy this. They're, <laughs> she goes, I would never buy this. They're ugly. <laughs> and, All right. And I, even then I thought, you mean you're going to buy something because of what somebody looks like? You know, I thought, yeah. that, oh, that's kind of. I mean, considering how many copies that al- that album wound up selling eventually, well, yeah, too. Well, yeah, and then I thought, you know, I bet that girl went and bought that third record when it came out a year later, right. <laughs> like everyone when else. Had that one little bump in the. But 80s. that was that was what I had then, you know, because I was I was just sort of picking up on what other people were kind of showing me and stuff. And, and I look back, and I think the reason why I liked Boston then was again because they had that big guitar sound it's a great guitar sound. and it goes back to that guitar thing you know and i realized that it was more into the just the big guitar and Mm -hmm. you know there's a visceral quality to that distorted rock guitar that you know that's something i always just responded to and um eventually you know you're gonna get into i guess you talk about going to the milestone. Yeah. Well, because I've seen, because uh, you've actually taken me to your childhood home. So I've seen, you know, the kind of, or at least where, uh, the kind of area that you well, lived in. Well, up in Roanoke, outside of Roanoke, yeah. Right. It was pretty rural. So what was it like now coming into Charlotte? Because even in, you know, what, the eight early 80s, mid 80s? It was just starting to grow. Right. Yeah. It's definitely not as crazy well, and fucked up as it is now, but it was right. definitely an upgrade from what Part that of was. what I think the mindset, my, my, you got to, also remember my mom was devoutly religious and just against my rock and roll obsession you know oh, yeah this was gotcha. like Actually, the worst thing that could happen movie kind of oh yeah thing. absolutely <laughs> and 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 so you know somehow for some reason when we moved here they bought me a, a ticket to go see kiss 
because they were playing at the Coliseum, huh. the uh, which, which is now the Bojangles Arena. Right. And I and the only thing I could think of now looking back at it, because I don't really talk to my mom anymore, but I, I figured the reason why they probably eventually let me do this was because it was another major change I was having to go through, and mm-hmm. I did not do well while we were in uh, up in Chesapeake outside right. of Norfolk. And I thought, you know, maybe she thought this would ease the transition or something. <laughs> so uh, I can remember me and uh, me and my friend Eric. Mm-hmm. We were my stepfather. Your stepfather. We were uh, standing in line on Briar Creek, which back then was everything intersected. They didn't have the freeway that it is now. And I'm looking over at the skyline, and this is before that any of the stuff that's down downtown was there now. But I, you know, I was thinking, wow, I'm in a big city, you know, <laughs> I, I arrived, you know, going to my first concert and just feeling really big, you know, and so moving here. What tour with Kiss was that? Oh, God. It was you knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Asylum tour. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was pretty It was pretty bad. <laughs> I'll tell you what's funny is. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I remember we did this twice. We did this with Lick It Up too. If I remember, I might be getting too confused. I don't, I don't remember. But I remember we got the record and Asylum, and we were like, you play about like the first half of the song, and be like, uh, skip, uh, you know. And we're, you know, we knew we were just holding I made a on. Huge mistake. Well, when you grew up with that stuff, and you you want to, you know, it's like you know, you it's. Kiss falling off is like losing your faith in Santa Claus in a way. You know, it's kind of like you still wanted to believe, even though you knew at this point it you was still just got the total presents bullshit. every year. But yeah, you got the presents every year, but the presents weren't cool anymore. It's like, it's like when we listen to Ace Freely records. Oh yeah, and you just you know whatever, and that was that was that. But coming to Charlotte, it was just. Uh, it took a little while to adjust. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I kind of retreated into, you know, uh, a kind of a routine of just going to school and then coming home and hiding out in my room and listening to music and, you know, reading magazines and doing my thing. Yeah. And uh, I ran with some older kids. You know, I was, I guess I was 14, 15. They would have been 17, 18, mm-hmm. you know, but they weren't like, the proverbial quote unquote bad kids or nothing. It was right. just, they were just older people that I just happened to run around with. And, right. you know, I did that for a while. And, uh, then I met a guy at school that turned me onto the whole punk rock thing. And that's, that's when that started. And it's crazy just how basically one person can just be like, Hey, come to this show. Yeah. And it completely changed yeah. your tra- trajectory. I went to a misguided youth show at the original 4808 mm-hmm. on Central. And that was that was pretty eye-opening. And, uh, you know, I've seen shows like what you got in Charlotte now, and even now is nothing like it was back then. Really? It was insane. It was just uh, so many kids. Just, I mean, you know, the, it wasn't unusual for a local band, I guess, at least for me, to, what I saw you know, sometimes pull 150 people easy. See, I, and I also often wonder about that because, as you mentioned, you know, it is a struggle for, I would say, almost any local band. I wouldn't say it's even necessarily in Charlotte, but just, just the, anywhere. 
Yeah, that, oh, yeah, that doesn't it's, really happen as much. Was it a sign of the times? Was it because it was something new, or I don't was know. it just were I you think, were you just looking for that release? What, it was what, just what the, was I think the it was just the era that it was in. Yeah, there was no there was no internet. There was no. I mean, cable had just started to really. I mean, I guess by then everyone had cable or a, maybe a VHS player, but you didn't have. Uh, you didn't have all the distractions, I guess, that you have today. You don't have other things to do. You didn't have a lot of options. And, you know, I think kids kind of were more inclined to go and do this sort of thing. Yeah. We used to go, and when I started finally going to shows, I'd go to the Milestone. And I was living out in Weddington. And we would drive up there every weekend. And it didn't matter who was playing. Mm-hmm. You'd just go because there was nowhere really else to go. Right. There really wasn't anything else to do. And I, and, I, and I would remember, I would see kids like the kind of rednecky kids with their, with their muscle cars and stuff. What they would do is they would go sit and park in a parking lot at a food lion or something and i thought what what the hell are you doing <laughs> drinking gonna, smoking i don't know they're just and they're in just charlotte too and they're sitting I mean, in a parking lot all night i'm like man go go see a band go do something I mean, man we did that growing up in west tennessee but that's because there was literally nothing, nothing else to do <laughs> yeah you didn't have things. well I, I just couldn't understand that we, we, we used to i remember we used to go to the parking lot and Kind of rasm, you know, just to <laughs> see if they would get pissed off and chase you. Did anything ever horrible happen through that? No, or did no, it, no. Did it usually the, in good fun. I got, I got followed one time, but not by rednecks. I got followed by some skinheads in a truck one time. I thought oh, I was shit. gonna, yeah, I, I pissed <laughs> off. See, that's another thing that doesn't exist anymore is the presence of the skinheads. Mm-hmm. That was a thing. Yeah, like, I think, you, I think like that's been danger. thoroughly, or yeah. I wouldn't say thoroughly, but pretty well, at least in our area, pushed out. I yeah. have not like they don't seen go to that. Shows. I travel all over now, and I haven't seen it anywhere. And it feels like, especially with an anti-scene crowd, you would that would be the time you would well, at least would, see they, one they or would, two. They, well, there was more than one or two back in the day, and a lot of people forget that it was anti-scene that kind of shut that shit down in Charlotte. Really? Yeah, big time. Give that was all. That. Uh, that was well. There's a there's a whole backstory, but <clears throat> that was the night I played my first show as Mad Brother Ward. Right on. And they brought in uh, Cosmo, the Cosmic Commander of Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And man, I'm talking about almost a full scale riot in the Milestone Club. Really? And uh, yeah, it was it was scary. It was the scariest thing I think I've experienced in Charlotte, anyway. Wow. And um, and they, you know, it was like the bill, the bands that played that night were Anti Scene, Cockneys, and mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Cosmo was the guest MC. Uh, so you know, if any, just look up these bands if you don't know who I'm talking about. I'm just right. sitting here imagining that bill going, "Wow!" Yeah. <laughs> the infamous Charles Inman was playing bass for me at the time. Really? Okay. Was so, Greg still on? Was that no, Street? Greg, Greg, Greg played on the record, but he didn't do the show. Okay, gotcha. uh, but it kind of squared off where it was like all the Cockneys guys and me and Charles and Anti Scene all on the stage. And Jeff's like, you know, telling these guys, look, you guys want to start trouble? Let's do it. We're tired <laughs> of it, you know? <laughs> He goes, you know, you guys want to fucking do this. Uh-huh. And boy, God, you know. And there was like six or eight of them, maybe. Right. 
And they backed down, and that was the last. You never saw it again. Wow. It was the end of it. But those guys used to come every single show and just fuck with people. You knew somebody was going to get hurt, you know? Because they could. They were big, capable of kicking your ass guys, you know? (laughs) And I've never understood that. It's like, if you're going to a show, that's supposed to be just a fun release, you know? And and especially at a place like the Milestone, you can expect anything to happen over there, but... Well, I mean, it's not even so much, I guess, I look at it like... You know, I, I, I don't really give it a lot of thought as to what their uh, motivations were or whatever. I think they were trying to come and have fun too, but their idea of having fun was violence or you know, shit maybe, like that. Or, and I, I get it to a certain extent, but you know, you got to remember you're dealing with people that are younger with uh, immature attitudes or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It just was what it was. Yeah. I got those guys so mad one night. That and I seen this is before Mad Brother Word. And my memory of this is kind of dim. I just remember I got in a scuffle with a guy in the parking lot. He tried to put a cigarette out in my face. Oh shit! All right. And when we squared off, all of a sudden, those skinhead guys all circled around. I thought I'm gonna die. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't remember how I got out of it. But by the end of the show. My girlfriend at the time was like, don't go outside. I'm like, why? They're going to kill you. Oh. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Sure. But then I found out one of them had a shank and he was going to stab me. Oh, shit. Allegedly. Right. And so what uh, happened was... uh, I remember, and I seen back their van up to the stage door. Mm-hmm. You know where I'm talking at Milestone. You know how it's right yeah. there on the street. Yeah. So I could get out. I had to go through the door into the van. And I remember. I think it was Tom O'Keefe, their bass player at the time. It might have been Joe. In fact, actually, I think it was Joe telling me you can't do this mm-hmm. because <clears throat> you know eventually this kind of stuff will cause the clubs to not let us have shows anymore. Right. They were cognizant of it, too. So I got finger-wagged from those guys that night. But, um, well, that's what it was. (laughs) Damn. There's, like, legit danger in Charlotte back then. That's just crazy for me to imagine. I've only been here for, like, five years. Well, I mean, that's a, I mean, whether or not that guy was actually going to do anything to me is irrelevant. I kind of doubt it. Right. He's probably just, you know, huffing and puffing and, you know. I probably still would have gotten beat up. Right. But he's still, like, you know, fully capable of shit like that, probably. Mm. But, you know. There were guys that went into that sort of stuff without fear. I, I, where I learned a lot of my shit was from this kid named Jess Rosenberg. And Jess lived out in Union County. And somehow, in the very tail end of the 80s, before there was internet or anything, he had patched in and knew so much stuff about all this music. And really schooled me on a lot of stuff. And he wasn't scared of anything. And he was not, I mean, he was your proverbial... Well, I wouldn't say pencil neck geek, but certainly a pencil pushing nerd. <laughs> right. And unassuming. But he just didn't care. And I remember he got into it with a crusty guy kid in the parking lot in the monster one night. And the kid's like, I heard you're talking shit and blah, 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 blah. And Jess, Jess was just like, yeah, because you're fucking stupid. <laughs> you know? I just think you're, you know, I'm going... Dude, you're gonna get beat up, you know. <laughs> but he didn't care. 
I just pictured DJ doing shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's when I realized you got to back up what you say. You can't just talk shit. Right. And then when you see somebody go, oh, you know, whatever, you know. AKA keyboard warriors it. today. Yeah. Keyboard warriors. Right. <laughs> well, this is different. Jess had a little fanzine. He, co- he had a couple of them. First one was called Music to Die For. I think you can still see some of their stickers at the milestone. And he would, he wasn't afraid to, you know, poke people in the eye. And if yeah. they com- confronted him, he'd just bet. He'd say, yeah, I said it. You know, just don't. And he was the first and... one. He goes, he was the guy that taught me. He's like, it's not enough to go, you suck. <laughs> you gotta, it's got to be, you suck, and here's why. Yep. <laughs> he taught you how to criticize. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of where we come from on that, because Cap and I had a discussion a little while back, which was, why is it easier, at least in some instances, to go on and on about something that you don't like? But it, like if you're talking about an album, okay, mm. uh, you can go, man, tracks one through three were amazing. But four just really sucked. The lyrics on there were bad. The melodies. What were they the, doing during the, the chorus? The mix, the guitar tones, and you get real nitpicky about it for no reason. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just the part of the criticism. I mean, everybody's a critic, you know? Yeah. Everybody has their I own get, taste. I and get criticized for being a critic. Oh, you're just a critic. <laughs> yeah, I'm a critic. Yeah, you know. Oh, excuse me. I like shit to be good. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to apologize for, for that. You. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize. Or you, should, you could just write a blog about it, like what you do. Well, I, don't, I um, the, the blog. I don't. I, I sometimes go off tangent, but most of what we do with the blog is just it's just for me to have a journal of what I've been doing with the band. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of connect all of that together. You know, we've two of your craziest stories you've shared so far has uh, kind of been wrapped in with Annie scene. And, you know, you've now said, you know, the blog is a good way to kind of keep a journal of that. When, when's the first time you became cognizant and realized what Annie scene was? Mm. Uh, the earliest memory I can have, I can think of where I saw their name. Mm. They were supposed to open for Ace Frehley at this club called kidnappers this would have been about 86 what <laughs> that would have been a show would have, would and have it, been fraley's comment and everything too yeah i believe okay. so yeah and and it didn't happen i don't think I, know, it was fact, 86, I know it didn't that would have been like first album fraley's comment yeah and um i think that whole show got canceled but oh shit but this is before i was going to shows i just saw the name in the paper but you know and the ace fraley thing caught my eye but then i see this name annie scene and i'm like you know, it was, it was an unusual name. I didn't under, I was like, I wonder what that means. <laughs> and it sticks out, you know. And, you know, and then, of course, is it anti scene or is it anti scene? And, you know, I, there's, I know no pare- there's, there's no correct. There's no correct. There's no, well, I don't, I don't, yeah, I guess they might have been doing that by then. But, um, you know, there's no correct pronunciation. But I did not know that at the time. And then, um, <laughs> uh, in fact, it was the night I went to go to my first punk rock show. That night I went to go see Misguided Youth. The guy I went with had a copy of EP Royalty, and he's like, here, listen to this. Took it home, and um, I'm still living at home. You know, I was like 17 or however old I was. And uh, my parents are asleep. And I go into my bedroom, and I'm, i am i got to be all quiet. <laughs> and I put the record on the turntable, and... The first song is uh, NC Royalty, and you know how it starts with all that buzz and the feedback and stuff. Yeah. And it even if I had the volume down low, it still felt so loud, right. you know. And I'm just sitting in my room going, "This is 
this is what I've been looking for. It's you know? that aggressive <laughs> guitar tone. buzzsaw guitar you were talking about. <laughs> you know, and that's that was it. And I was like, wow. And I was, I just, I remember studying that record cover and trying to figure it all out and what mm. it was and what it meant and who these people were. And, you know, because what I, what little punk rock I knew at the time was kind of all your stereotypical kind of London, you know, colored hair and spiky hair and, or, or, or the New York hardcore thing or whatever. And these guys right. did not look like that at all. They were doing their own thing that was so completely different. And that appealed to me because, you know, that was, they were, I Nobody realized sounded like them. Nobody looked they like had, them. they were, you know, they weren't trying, there was no pretense. And so then I had to go see them, uh, you know, and I remember the first chance I had, something screwed up and I wasn't able to go. And that was the start of their, that summer, probably their first tour, I think in 89, they did a summer tour. They started it in Charlotte and uh, I missed that one. And then, so the next time I got a chance was at the milestone, which was um, September of 89, probably Labor Day weekend. Right. I've still got a flyer for that. Actually, I think I remember you showing me that flyer because you've got it framed. Yeah, I got it from Jeff. I I, I remembered it, and um, oh god, it's been probably six or eight years ago. He was cleaning out some stuff, and he gave me a bunch of flyers, and that was one of them. Well, but I can remember that, you know, really altering my whole trajectory at that point. Mm-hmm. I went with couple of friends and they didn't have the same experience that i did (laughs) (laughs) what what was their takeaway well i think it was just you know they they thought it was a curiosity uh got it they weren't it just didn't resonate with them and um you know to me it was like this was like you were into it i was just super into it you know jeff was you know throwing himself like a rag doll it was it was <laughs> his his performance was a lot more physical than still doing his uh mick foley thing at the time no this is way before that Oh, way before that okay and uh, i remember and i've told alex this before i remember him he threw himself and he just like he just i don't even know how to describe it, it wasn't like a stage dive he just kind of just launched himself and he wasn't worried about whether anyone was going to catch him or not. And this was just in the milestone. So it wasn't like he had far to go. but <laughs> Enough. But it was enough. And he landed at a clump in my feet. And I thought, do I help this guy up? <laughs> or if I touch him, is he going to hit me? And, and what, what do I do here? Yeah. And then, then I realized I'm, I'm in a whole different thing here. Because I never thought of a place where you'd go see a band and the band was a threat to you physically. <laughs> and here this band was a threat to you physically. Right. This was a this was a huge thing for me. And that was a big part of it. And I and I was like, this is the way it should be, you know, because there's no again, there's no pretense. There's no there's no posing. There's there's no there's no even there's not even a message here. It's just a complete um just a, a complete kind of exorcism of whatever daily <laughs> bullshit you deal with. Right. And it all comes out in this physical, sonic, all-out, just full-on attack. It's and a whole thing. It's, and it's all outward, you know? And it's not a, it's not a hey, y'all, we're, we're unity and all this yeah. stuff. It had nothing to do with that. It was just... 
And you either liked it or you got the hell out. (laughs) And I loved it. I was like, this is it. This is what it's all about. And And was your gateway band through uh, punk rock in general? Well, I was uh, already kind of getting into it, but that was the band that kind of like swung the door open. And then I realized I was starting to get into stuff that, you know, I guess other people weren't quite as interested in I, I was, when it kind of became your own thing and work. well I, th- I th- the other thing I, th- I liked about them I, I bought honor among thieves that week and i looked at the back liner notes and <laughs> they don't say the liner notes guy that wrote them didn't say you know these guys are influenced by the sex pistols and the ramones and black right. flag no they're influenced by blue cheer and black oak arkansas and, yeah. and the who and i thought Okay, I get this. When I first saw Jeff Clinton and he got the washboard out, I'm like, oh, he was a big Jim Dandy fan, wasn't he? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I realized they were the first guys to make it cool to me to like both, both (laughs) punk rock, both uh, Black Flag and Black Oak Arkansas. (laughs) Okay, and and you and and you start and if once you step back and you start looking at it, you realize these these lines of demarcation are really kind of blurry, right? You know, and. What's his favorite band now? Hall and Oates? <laughs> okay, maybe not all the lines are. <laughs> but, you know, as far as that kind of visceral kind of, right. you know, and it goes back to that same feeling that I had when I was a little kid listening to that record, and he goes, to the devil, or whatever he said, it sounded like that to me. It was that same feeling. I was like, yes, you know. <laughs> to quote John Bowman, which has been an ongoing thing now, I grabbed you by the boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just something about it, <coughs> and I wasn't I wasn't ready to. I, I realized the hard way I wasn't ready to patch into the punk rock thing as far as a social thing. Really, I couldn't fit in with those kids. They made fun of me. Everything I did was wrong, you know, and it was awkward. And that seems a bit odd <coughs> that a punk community would be like that because the punk community it. it on the surface, especially the very message. accepting and tolerant and blah Thank blah blah, blah. but no, right. it's just That's another stupid deals. click. But these <laughs> kids, these kids were fucking stupid. But they liked Kiss, oh, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't gonna fucking just stop just because I like this other stuff too, right? And it was just like you know, and that's what got me in the 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 kind of started the whole impetus behind the Mad Brother Ward train of thought, right? Which was. You know, kind of just go into attack mode. So, so where did that name even come from? What, Mad Brother Ward? Mm-hmm. That came from Jeff. That was a joke. Um, we were joking about. We used to work together in a warehouse, furniture warehouse, and we were talking one day. We're like, you know, we we were big wrestling fans. And we were joking about what our wrestling names would be. <laughs> and Actually, he, yeah. he was like, well, you, they would call you Mad Brother Ward. And I'm like, Mad Brother Ward? And he's it's like, great yeah. Great wrestling name. I'm like, why? He goes, because you're always bitching about something. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was like, well, that's apt. <laughs> and so when we, I was in a band, my first band, which was called Failure. And there was a major label band called Failure too, but we didn't know it. Uh, Actually, I think they came up a, a little later. I found out that band existed the day we played our first show. Uh, whoops! <laughs> yeah. oh, I was like, "Fuck them." <laughs> There's room in the world for more than one failure. 
<laughs> Damn, that, that would have been a great album title. Yeah. Damn, it would have been a great wrestler too. We we had this band, and that was kind of again that same that same attitude kind of came into play, and we had this sort of. Uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Just a thing between us and this hardcore band that was popular at the time in Charlotte. And they had changed their name like three times, but they were probably best known as Reflex Aggression. Okay. And these guys were, I mean, they were friends, but they weren't, you know? Right. And uh, they could play really well, and they you know, they had good equipment. They came from kind of affluent families. I guess their parents bought them their stuff. I don't know. Right. And these guys, I remember this one dude used to roll around in his, in a, you know, they all, this is the thing I never understood, especially in this era. And this is kind of a forgotten era, I think, in Charlotte history because it's post-80s, very early 90s, and it's sort of a forgotten time. Right. But these kids would ride around. It was, you, you kind of had these three factions in, in the punk rock thing around here. You had kind of these quasi-crusty kids. Mm-hmm. You had the kind of the more artsy kind of alternative kids. We called them alternamites. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had these pseudo-New York hardcore kids. All of them shared the same commonality of coming from fairly affluent middle-class homes right even the crusty kids right <laughs> they could no. always go home and have a uh, yeah i was gonna a, say a that hasn't meal. changed much so would this be our generation or uh this version of uh, like a version of our generation's hot topic kids or whatever nah, maybe the alternative might probably more so but yeah no they, they, they were this the is definitely the kids, kids that still hang out at uh common market begging for change and then ride the bus home to mom and dad's house to have I, a nice I don't meal. know right. i mean well, you i'm know, saying today i'm not the thing of it, it was uh, the, the, the this new york hardcore thing that was so funny was because these kids are from like you know surrounding areas of charlotte you know and they they're from they're from maybe clover or maybe they're from concord or <laughs> something but they you know but they know oh, wait wait we can't talk like that you guys <laughs> Yo, you know what's up you know and then acting oh, hard you know everything had to be hard it had to be tough you know somebody discovered by uh listen to biohazard once and just <laughs> well this is you know it was all agnostic front and all oh, that yeah. stuff okay and and you know i mean i like early agnostic front yeah you know but But i didn't i didn't want to fucking have to you know all of a sudden put on the 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 uniform uniform. (laughs) and and i just thought this is so fucking corny you know and i'm like what's wrong with this people (laughs) i'm like be who you are and that was the big that was i guess the big thing and it was just like well you know what we're just gonna we can't like with the reflex guys those guys played really well and their band was good right and um we couldn't play as good as they could, but we could. If we couldn't outplay them, we could outshow them. Right. And you know that's when we started into like smashing our stuff. That was <laughs> that became our thing. I was able to find these cheap guitars at a at the flea market out in Union County. This guy was kind of trading cheap gear, and I could go out there and buy like a, a cheap electric no name guitar for like ten or fifteen dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, it smashed the fuck out of it. <laughs> And we did this. We got in trouble. We played a show at the Milestone one time. And when we got done, there was like police and fire department all lined up and down around the block there. We got in so much trouble. Just for, for smashing gear. Uh, well, we had like smoke bombs and stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Loud banging noises and smoke. I can kind of understand it that. It was maybe pretty chaotic. A <laughs> and this is still in the early 90s when that was still allowed and shit, right? 
uh, no, it wasn't allowed at all. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was just like okay, that was that was the that was the advent of what would eventually turn into like the Mad Brother War thing. But the guys that I was playing with, you know, eventually they saw the limitations in doing stuff like that. Because yeah. eventually you weren't going to get to play places. You're going to get in trouble. And they wanted to play. <laughs> which is understandable. Get banned from every club. <laughs> Did and that, that happen? Well, yeah. In the long term, when I when I started doing the Mad Brother War thing, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mad Brother Warm in the Street. Mad Brother Warm. Wow. Mad Brother Warm. <laughs> Warm in the Screaming Street Trash. Two seven inches. Two records. It wasn't even supposed to be two. It was supposed to be one. It wasn't even supposed to be a show. I got, <laughs> I got kicked out of the band that I was in, and we had recorded what we thought was going to be the first seven inch for that band. Right. And um, this is how all this ties together. Malcolm Tent was going to put it out. And Malcolm just toured with us on this last thing that we did with Anticene substituting on bass. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm had his own record label. And he saw a failure play. We, we played at this thing called the Alternative Radio Coalition. This, they, was, they were trying to bring alternative radio to Charlotte. They wanted like college radio kind mm-hmm. of format on a commercial station in Charlotte. Right. And what they were doing was they were trying to build... Uh, I guess try to prove that there was a audience for this kind of format where there is only UNCC, right? And um, <laughs> and you couldn't get UNCC yeah. kids to go to you know those people didn't it's, to this day don't support live music, but anyway. <laughs> so they would do these meetings and basically they would have like a keynote speaker come in, like like I guess some I. I my memory of this is dim, but I assume it was like usually like an A&R guy or something from some label or something. Right. And then they would have a local band play. And uh, one week a band had to cancel and they needed a last minute substitute. And I Who think they call. <laughs> well, I think Fred Mills came up with this idea thinking it would be funny. And I might be wrong about this, but <laughs> this is how it, this is how I remember it. Fred Mills called Charles Inman. And said, we need a band. Can your band do it? Yes, we can. <laughs> oh, yes, we can. We'll be the redheaded stepchild of this entire series. And we came in, and in the first song, it was like this mass exodus. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 150 people. And, 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 and I mean, it was like a fire alarm or something. It was just like. Oh, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> and I mean, the band wasn't great, but we weren't terrible. And we actually, the guy that was the the main songwriter in that band is a guy named Brad Mullins, and he's got he can write anything he wants to. He's just got that he's weird. A he's a great. He's he's great at everything he tries. And uh, but we just went full aggro. You know, I remember we I, I cut my thumb somehow. I was bleeding. <laughs> Uh, we were smashing our stuff and everything and the whole audience left. We played like maybe 15 minutes and Malcolm was there. He was right. down visiting Jeff for some reason, or I don't remember why he was in town, but he was just like, I got to put out your record. You know, <laughs> he's like, that was the coolest thing. Oh my God. That reminds me of the Alice Cooper store with, with uh, Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't much like, unlike that. What I didn't know was that same afternoon they had made a decision to throw me out of the band. Whoa! And um, but then I was sort of the 
kind of tenuous connection to Malcolm. So it was like, well, you know. <laughs> so they, we were we went and we recorded. We recorded the whatever was songs that we did. And then the day after, they threw me out. <laughs> and then it was kind of like, well, what do I do now? And Jeff's like, well, why don't you just record your own stuff and make your own record? See if Malcolm will put it out. Well, how do I do that? <laughs> well, you write some songs, <laughs> you get some people, and you record it and send it to Malcolm and see what he says. He's and, just a phone call away, huh? <laughs> and I was thinking, this is impossible. He's not, He's already, you know, I'm like, he can't. You know, he's not made out of money. I'm sure he can't just be putting out record after record after record. And then kind of, yeah, that's what it's what a label does, you know. <laughs> but I, I didn't think of it that way. And so um, this was the summer of 92. So and it was the month of August. One weekend we sat down, I, me and a guy named Tom Nally, we wrote a couple of songs. The next weekend we got together <clears throat> and Greg Clayton volunteered to play drums on it. So we practiced them, and then the weekend after that, we went into the studio, and we recorded it, and we did it all in four hours. Wow. And um, we didn't have a bass player. There's a, we, we, we have a phantom bass player on it. We just doubled it up ourselves. Oh, really? <laughs> did the Steve Jones thing? Yeah, and um, sent it to Malcolm, and he was like, not only is he going to put out your record, he's not going to put out... The other guy's record. Oh, damn. Because <laughs> he liked this guy. bumped ahead. As I was sitting here so, being curious about that, going like, I've not heard those recordings. Do you actually have a copy of those? No. What? Wow, so that's some <clears throat> lost Russ Ward recordings No, right I think they mixed me out of it completely. Really? Yeah. How, how, would they have, how much time was there in between all that for them to mix you out of it and put a different I'd, vocalist I'd, on I'd, it? I, I didn't sing on it. I was playing guitar. Oh, okay. I wasn't the I singer in that band. Vocals. That was the other thing. I never wanted to be the vocalist. I just wanted to play the guitar. Okay. No, I wasn't the vocalist. And oh, then, so the matter of the war thing, I just had to. I, I, I was like, well, I'm going to get a better guitar player than me. Right. You know, anything I'm going to do now has got to be you better. To do vocals, or was it like? I don't remember that. I don't think. I don't remember him really pushing me to do anything. Yeah. Uh, he was helping, mm-hmm. but and and you know, it, I would I would follow the advice. But, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, writing or anything like right, that, right. we were on our own. He wasn't going to write. Oh, of song, course you know. not. But I didn't know if he was like, you know, hey, Russ, you need to you know, just be a front man, man. Why don't you just sing? You know, that kind of encouragement. Uh, or pushing. He may have. He, yeah. I'm sure he probably did. No, I just he's definitely not one to take charge and be like, your project is now part of mine. No. But he is definitely one to give some uh, serious some advice yeah. to. My memory, my memory was that it had to be better. Right. So I had to find a better guitar player and I had to have a better, you know, just better everything. And, you know, it wasn't enough to be good enough. Just it to had be, to be really be comfortable with good. your strengths and weaknesses. If you can improve, just do it, it. Just, yeah. And so, and, uh, you know, we, in fact, it was so much better that the weak link in, in, in my opinion on those in the classic Russ Ward fashion was uh, the weak link was me. <laughs> Uh, you know? I think every musician feels like that, though. Because, hell, even last night at our show, I was dicking around. And I said, trust me, if the Philins had a different singer, y'all wouldn't be playing the Milestone anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, I sound We're like... We're still a- improving all our stuff, too. <laughs> You've heard those records. I sound like an angry Muppet. 
Well, you know? I wouldn't say you sound like an angry Muppet. You sound like an angry... Muppet. No, you, you sound like an angry kid. You sound like an angry teen. It's yeah. it's it's a very testosterone, anger-filled two seven inches, you know? What was funny is at the time I had, um, I had my first hernias. Oh. I was working for this furniture company. And hernia, you know, your guts are kind of like popping out at the seam, right? Right. So when I recorded the vocals on that thing, I was balled up in a ball on the floor. Oh. And I'm holding, I'm holding the mic like this. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, you know. One of my favorite things on that 7-inch is the intro piece between you and Jeff. Yeah, that was all made up on the cuff. What, what happened with that was um, we were um, setting the mic levels. Uh-huh. And, of course, being big wrestling fans... It just turned into, while we were doing the mic levels, it just turned into, you know, cutting promos like a wrestler would, you know, <laughs> daddy on Sunday afternoon, you know, that kind of thing. And, Bravo. um, and it, it, we, it, Jeff goes, that was the big influence of Jeff. He's like, we should record some of that. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that he's like, try to think of something what you want to say and we'll, we'll record it. And that's how that came about. <laughs> and so that was actually done after we recorded all the songs. That was like one of the last things we did. Because and, I know there's a handful of them. It starts the album, <laughs> you have one in the middle, and then there's almost a jam thing at the end where it's almost like noise okay. and you're yelling over that. Yeah, that was started out as a song. What we were trying to do, the original plan for that first record was to make it a single. Right. It was just going to be... The song uh, "Hated" on one side and "Take You Down" on the other. Okay. But I stole a song from the band that I was in previous. Mm-hmm. Well, I say stole. I, I co-wrote it. Right. But it was a song we didn't record, and I was like, "Oh, I can record this too." Yeah. And we just did that. We we didn't even we hadn't even practiced it. I went over it like once or twice with Greg, and I played guitar on that, and we did that. So we had three songs now, and I was like, "Well." let's try to go for four. I have this other idea. Maybe I can make something up. Perfect. That was the one that turned in. It, we, it, it just kind of fell apart. And, yeah. And, and it was like, well, we can maybe just like, just ran over the top of it. <laughs> and that's how that came along. And, um, I wasn't even sure what was going to get used at that point. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I, it's hard for me to listen to that now. Really? Oh yeah. But, you is know, it just because that, it was so early on and maybe well, in your in the critic your own critics mind inexperienced yeah yeah and, and I you know that way, I, I just think that shit. um you know I, I listen to it and i go well i know what i could have done better but given the amount of time and preparation we put into that i mean you know that was the proverbial catching lightning in the bottle right and it, it worked it, it worked for what it was and we thought you know we sent it out the record got made and we thought oh it's gonna get trashed and then um after we made it jeff jeff was the one that was a big proponent of going you need to do a show mm-hmm. and i had no intention of doing a show i had no I really didn't have a band i had tom the, the guitar player but greg was anti scenes drummer at the time and i didn't have a bass player and i'm like i don't have a band and i really hadn't thought about that He's like, you need to do at least one show, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, around that time, that fall, the guys that were the rhythm section in failure all quit. Mm. And I started getting phone calls. Interesting. 
And I thought, well, <laughs> I guess I got a rhythm section. I guess, you know. <laughs> and so we started to put that together, and that's how we played that first show. Nice. It was with those guys. And um, actually, I had a second guitar player. Uh, the first show, the second guitar player was a guy named Dave Rames. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a local luminary, I guess, of some sort. And uh, he just did the first show. And then a guy named Scott Mosley played it like, well, I guess he played the second show. Okay. Right. I don't know whatever happened to that guy. It's <coughs> musicians, man. They'll, they'll just drop off the face of the go, planet man. on you, man. It's just, <laughs> sometimes you can barely get them to respond to a text and then all of a sudden, Well, boom, that was kind of how it would go. And then, you know, the lineup would change continuously thereafter. It was always me and Tom. And that's the reason why we ended up calling it Mad Brother Ward and the Screaming Street Trash. We knew going into it. It's like, okay. We're not it, the the team was going to be was supposed to be me and Tom, mm-hmm. and we knew that we would have a hard time keeping people trying to play with us. Right. And I was like, let's just put this idea of quote unquote Mad Brother Ward out front, and that'll be identifiable. And right. that way, whoever the band is, you know, it'll always be Tom and whoever we can get. Right. And it, it was just pragmatism in our way of thinking. As opposed to being just, in fact, the Screaming Street Trash, that name, I didn't even come up with that. That was, uh, Tom came up. He was the Screaming Street Trash. <laughs> well, no, Tom came up with the name Street Trash from that movie. There's that 80s cult movie, Street Trash. Okay. And it was kind of a joke behind it. Like, you know, we we're going, yeah, just wait. There's supposed to be some L.A., you know, cock metal band that's going to come up guns and roses la guns street trash right. <laughs> and then we both kind of looked at each other and went hmm and and greg clayton's the one who goes no it needs to be the screaming street trash awesome that sounds like a greg it, that it sounds is. like he would just was, buzz that, out. Love that. that was the brilliance of greg clayton <laughs> And uh, so that's how that came about. So you throw that record out and it actually doesn't get trashed. No, it got like Maximum Rock and Roll loved it. That's crazy. We we heard about it before we saw it. Somebody told us, man, they love your record. And I'm like, don't, you're lying. You know, I'm like, no, they didn't. (laughs) Don't fuck with me, man. Yeah. And he's like, no, I'm I'm not. Because he had a, he had a a prescription. (laughs) He had a subscription. Yeah. He had a subscription, and he got his like a week or two before they hit the stands. Yeah, and that's how we found out about it. And I was just like, "We gotta make a second one." (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't think about that right away, but um, that kind of came into play after we saw you know the reviews started coming in, and then you know flip side, I think they gave it a really good review too. Wow, do you still have those snippets? (laughs) Yeah, I think they're on my Facebook page. Okay. Um. You know, it just was a surprise, and we didn't even think about touring or playing shows or any of that stuff. That shows how just the record short-sighted and well, we never intend. I never intended for anything other than like once we made the record, that was supposed to be it, and then maybe one show, and we did the show, and the show was crazy, and I got banned at the milestone. <laughs> Right out, you asked about getting banned right off the shoot. Right I out was, the gate. Right out the gate. She's like, 
she get, we got paid five dollars after expenses, and there was five members in the band at the time. And I literally took a dollar. Was like, here's your cut. Here's your cut. Here's your cut. And and I, and we were like told, and you know, not to ever ask to play here again. That was the that was the quote. Wow. And and I was like, okay. <laughs> but then this club opened up over on uh, North Tryon called Heretics. Those guys heard about it. And they contacted me and said, we want that <laughs> here. Can you do what you did there? Can you do that here? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so that kind of became our home club for the next, you know, we only played like six or eight shows. Really? Yeah. We rarely ever played. So. But it would be that intense every show? No, but a lot of them were. We got in trouble real, the, the most intense, we opened for this band called the Skate Nicks. And they were like this band that were like a low rent guar. Okay. <laughs> and they had all this like, I remember they sent the club all this like publicity stuff talking about they were the real anarchy the Sex Pistols could only sing about. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh really? <laughs> <laughs> Let's you don't see. say. <laughs> and and that show turned into a kind of a nightmare. <laughs> But they, I, it all kind of blurs together. Even though there's only a handful of shows, I kind of get them mixed up in my head sometimes as to which one was which. Um, because I know there was a show where I got I got sucker punched from behind. And I know there was a show. I remember one show where I came home and I got in the shower and I had this big, huge bruise on me. And I think yeah, it was no on my leg. Work. My memory is on my leg. It was one of those deals where it's like a cut with mm, the bruise around mm-hmm. it thing. Yeah. And I had no idea how that happened. I was like, what the, what did I do? <laughs> and I think I might have fell on a table or something. <laughs> and he it's, thinks he might. And it's funny, the stuff that I get told about. Uh, Dave Weinkoop tells me the story about, um, and, and uh, there's a funny, it gets, it gets better here. <laughs> he talks about... Um, me being on the pool table at Heretics, kicking the cue balls during our set. And I don't remember doing that. But um, a couple of years ago, where we work at, and I, I'm not going to say where we work at, but where we work at, uh, <laughs> this lady came in and she knew Dave, like from way back when. Right. And I walk, happen to walk up on him and she's like, you're that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and she tells the same story. So I know it didn't, you know, and I'm going, she's like, you're on the pool table and you're like kicking all the cue balls and throwing shit and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, it's one of those where like, well, I guess you really that. can't make something like that up anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the downside from that is um, kind of getting a reputation for the was, for the annex instead of the music. I was thinking about that, too. It's like the people hire you just solely for the, those purposes. No, no. In fact, we wouldn't get to play. We uh, we had to talk our way into some places. Uh, there was a club called Jeremiah's, and the guy wouldn't have us play. And I remember Tom O'Keefe, I think, is the one that talked him into letting us play. And then, you know, we got the lecture. Just play. Don't do stupid stuff. Right. Which, which means in your head you hear, don't play. Just do stupid yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, we didn't. I, Sorry, I, man. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> we went up there uh, in advance of that. They used to have an open mic night. And we went up there one night uh, after practice. And this was with Greg. Right. 
And it was with Brad, ironically. Now, here's the funny thing. It was the band that I have with Brad, that band Failure, and then we had the ugly breakup, came full circle, and Brad started playing with me, huh. playing guitar. And we were going to, I mean, he wasn't going to do it full time. He was just helping out because Tom had quit. And um, we went up to uh, an open mic night, and it was like they, they lay down the rules. They're like, no established bands. Well, we kind of saw that as like, you know, what they meant was no bands. They, right. You can't be a, a existing band. You has, They were trying to do a freeform, you know, interactive blah, blah, blah. Somebody, anybody, everybody. Well, they said no established bands, and we were like, well, we're not established. <laughs> <laughs> Technically. Technically. And we get on stage, and I remember Greg walked over to this. This girl was sitting behind the drum kit, <clears throat> and Greg just goes, Hand me them sticks. <laughs> and she looked at him like, are you, you know. And, Wait, what? And, and one of the guys knew who Greg was from Anti-Scene. He's like, no, 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 this is fine. This is fine. And we played like three songs. We just drilled three songs. Boom, boom, boom. But you could tell like that first song. And we didn't do anything really crazy, but it was just the look of us. Mm -hmm. Because my bass player had this like Liberty Spike Mohawk. It was neon orange. Brad somehow had painted his face like Ace Fraley. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, I mean, we were just freaky looking anyway. And we hit that. I remember we first, first, first song and like the whole crowd just physically took a step backwards. <laughs> and, I, and that was the first time I realized the power of the band. The music could carry this. We didn't need to do the crazy stuff that, you know, the songs are good. The, music the band was, was strong. We could do this. It's almost a Ramones approach because they weren't crazy on stage. They were almost, you know, stoic and statuesque. You know, yeah. they would they would walk to the front of the stage, walk to the back of the stage. They well, were running around. I think doing they were crazy more physical stuff. in their early days, but yeah. But I mean, it's not even that. I'm talking about is just as far as throwing stuff and right, getting right, in right. fights and all that stuff because that's what it was before. Like the night with the skate Nicks thing, I think we were on stage 30 minutes and played four songs. It was wow. just insanity. And, and and your songs are not long either. And they weren't so. long songs. <laughs> <laughs> and then they wouldn't play. The, the the thing about the skate mix thing is they wouldn't even come off their bus. They had a bus, right? Oh, and they're shit. you know outside a club that's like the size of the milestone. You know this tiny little club called Heretics, and they wouldn't come off their bus. And they were like, "We're not coming off our bus until that guy's gone." And we had to like physically leave the premises. And a lot of it had to Holy do with shit. Charles Inman. Charles Inman already threw him out of their own dressing room. Right? <laughs> 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 that was pretty funny. <laughs> I heard later he was firing a gun into the ground. I think that's really what scared him. I don't know if that's oh, true. Yeah. That's just what I heard. <laughs> So, Screen the Street Trash, you said, what, only did like a handful of shows, like six shows or a handful, roughly, less than ten? Le well, yeah, wait, less than ten. So, and then I know that later on there was The Divider, so how much of a time period was there between Scream and Street Trash? Because, just to kind of paraphrase the rest of that, you did make a second uh, seven-inch. Made the and second was record. And handful of demos and such. And then there was Dividers later on. How that was way later. Let's right. see, we did the, the second Scream and Street Trash record came out in 94. Mm -hmm. We recorded that record the day Gigi Allen died. I, that's the thing I remember most about that. Wow. Because Jeff got the phone call while we were recording it. Then, uh, my memory on this dims, we played the last show, and everybody kind of went their separate ways, and I was trying to be a good husband and father. I had kids. We right. got married. Right. Failed miserably. <laughs> 
And when I got single again, that's when I started thinking about, I got on stage a couple of times with other bands during that time. It was always a surprise that people would know who, you know, know about this stuff. Uh, there was a band out of Clover. They were doing shows. This would have been 97 ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they knew all those songs. They could play them. It was weird. And they were like, dude, come, come do hated with us. Come do hated with us. I'm like, <laughs> That's cool. Okay, so I'd show up at the milestone, get on stage, and do hate it with them at the encore. You wow, know? that's cool. And uh, I remember, so I remember got a little cult following going on. Well, kind of, it felt like that, and I, but I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And then I, I remember, um, every time I got up, I was like, well, you know what? I've been banned from the milestone twice. I want to go for for a trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> How would you get unbanned? They just forget. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> and be like, oh, you can't play her again. And the first time we got banned was that with failure when we had the fire trucks. Uh-huh. The second time was with Mad Brother Ward. So it was kind of two different. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I smashed the stage lights out. I got up with the, the, I think they were called the Style Kings. And I remember I had a chair. You know, and I remember thinking, you can't find a partner, use a wooden chair. Mm. That's what I did. <laughs> and I had a chair. I was using a chair. And then I remember at the end of it, I, I sat on it backwards at one point, And I reached down and grabbed it from the back rung or whatever and right. flipped it over my head and jammed it into the stage lights. <laughs> Damn. And, and I don't remember, you know... I, they, didn't, they didn't say anything. I don't remember them giving me any grief about it. And then... Um, uh, I got up. I would get up a couple of times with the band uh, Drat. I started that band with Brad, but mm-hmm. then I dropped out like straight away. Okay. <laughs> and um, I got up with uh, the Beatdowns. I remember I did the. They would play Hated. I'd get up with them. I did that once or twice with them. Same thing. I remember one time at the milestone. I took out the stage lights again. <laughs> <laughs> what is it with you and the lights at the milestone? I don't know, man. Fuck these lights. Nobody leaves the show humming this bullshit. <laughs> I don't know where I learned that, but uh, I just, you know, I, I said knows. lights out, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was closing the show. My attitude was, I closed the show. <laughs> You'll need no more lights. I don't care if anyone comes after me. Guess what? I closed the show. I get, I get headliner you know? status for a reason. <laughs> when I get done, they still wait for the headliner. <laughs> I mean, that's my attitude. Right. And and that's the way I approached it. And I was like, if I'm doing this. This is it. This is what you're going home talking about tonight. You're still pretty aggressive with the guitar when you play, too. I don't think about that. I think that's the, I, think, I about, think that's why you are. Maybe I, I I watched a video recently of like the guy sent me a video of the probably the third show I did after joining and I seen we we're down in Texas and uh, I I'm just like we play good but I could tell I'm like terrified <laughs> I can see the fear in my eyes you know well I mean you know we're kind of in the zone too which is well I wasn't everything. there I wasn't there. Well, I mean, and to kind of maybe hop out of the timeline some, you know, all these years later, you know, unfortunately the, you know, passing of Joe and you get the call. Yeah. And as Bowman actually mentioned on his episode, you know, you were actually named, you know, to, you know, be in that position if anything were to happen. So after all those years of being around that band and having them as close friends, you know, now you are in that band. And that has to just, I kind of what you're saying, you weren't there. That has to be something that's just so surreal. Um, yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of different ways that that played out, and it's hard to explain. Yeah, 
because I also had to be cognizant that, uh, you know, after being the front man of my own thing, I'm no longer that guy. So now I'm having to be a foot soldier. It's a right. different role. It's a different role. It's Jeff's thing, you know, and I'm not, I can't be up there trying to show out and upstage the front front singer. You You're know, doing front what's band. best for the band. Yeah. And, and that was the part I had a hard time trying to figure out. It's like, where, where's, what do I do here? You know, it's been so long since I'd just been playing the guitar and I, I'm not a good guitar player and I'm okay with that. I can certainly do what it's perfect the, for Andy's for what MIC needs. And that's all I ever wanted to do. So it, it's, it, I'm in my wheelhouse doing exactly what I want to do and, and how I can, you know, I'm playing to what I can do. So that's not an issue. It's just a question of, you know, what's my position here and how do I handle it? So right. with dynamics um, and stuff. Well, I was going to bring up, uh, since then, you've uh, the band's been getting a lot of opportunities lately that you've been able to to experience, whether it's opening for uh, Meat Men or I Hate God. or Going to Japan. Going to Japan. Yeah. That, I mean, here's the thing is, like, you, I decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to be that guy. And if, if, my, if my thing hadn't been fully established in a way like what Jeff has done, then I'm going to stop when I'm 40. Right. So in 2010, I was 39 and I was like, okay, I played the last Mad Brother Ward show and I knew it was three songs into the set. Mm. I hit, I remember, I remember having that moment of clarity or whatever you call it in the middle of our set. And I was just like, I'm done. (laughs) Cut the set short and we were done. And then um, I was done playing music. I wasn't going to do it anymore. Huh. <clears throat> and it's one of those deals where it's just because you didn't succeed at this. Or no, just one of those I just where you, where you did set out to do everything you. I I more than accomplished more than you had anticipated. I'd accomplished more than I ever anticipated, and I, it was always. I was never serious about it. You know, um, I never made any serious effort to like tour. The worst mistake I think I made was not recording the Dividers Band. You were asking about that a minute ago. We'll get yeah. into that here in a minute. Um, that band should have been recorded. We had a lot of problems with that band that uh, you know still bother me. But gotcha. Uh, if we had recorded that band, it, I think we would have gotten a lot more traction. And then when Joe passed, I didn't know that they were going to continue playing. Then Jeff called and said come talk to me and i knew right then what was up and just you know those things where you just get that feeling and you're like oh and, yeah this is and since i wasn't involved in the anti scene family from the beginning uh did you know that uh joe had you in mind i heard him say that happen? twice that i can remember okay because i've always heard that but two I times heard it from you yet. i can remember him saying that and uh, one one was backstage in Atlanta. They were opening for the Meat Men. And one time they were talking about it. I was traveling with them. I don't even think I was... I don't think I was even doing anything. I think I just went on this one tour just for fun. Right. Yeah, because you would go in roadie or do merch. Merch or whatever. I wasn't doing merch. I think... Uh, you did merch the first tour I did, right? Yeah, I remember you going on the road doing merch when uh, it was another uh, meet yeah, men. Yeah, well, with the meet men. Yeah. Okay, you did. Okay, that wasn't the same tour then. This was a different one. Joe was still alive, uh, so you weren't on that one. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember, but I just remember we were going 
we were in the van and I remember the subject got brought up and Joe said something about, you know, that it could be him one night and me the very next or something, some sort of joke about that. Well, still, that, that's still something, you and, know, to kind of hold, you know, close to you, especially well, in a, you know, now. You know, the you joke, know. the joke was funny until it wasn't funny. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, that is, that's extremely true. Yeah. So, and, and I wasn't really asked to join so much as told. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeff, Jeff's like, come, come to the house. I want to talk to you. And, and, and Barry and, and Gooch were there and, uh. I think Jeff it's like Young. Like when the mob boss says, "Come here." <laughs> yeah. Well, the the my understanding the 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 decision making was largely done between Barry Jeff and Jeff Young, Joe's brother, right. who was adamant that they would continue. And so when I showed up, they're like, "Well, you know, we're gonna keep going." And we decided you're gonna be the one to play <laughs> guitar, right? And you know, how do you say no to that? You don't. No. So you really don't. And the idea is just to keep that going, you know, and try to do it with respect to what they already had established. And because you were so close with them already, I think that you do give it that proper respect that it does deserve. Because these last few records that have been released with you on guitar have been some of my favorite. It's like up there with my favorite classic Annie scene records. Very fucking consistent. And And I feel that... It, it sounds like Russ, because I know your guitar playing. We've jammed in the living room. And so it still sounds like Annie scene. But exactly, it still is Annie scene, well, and I think that's what you do very well. There, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of things that go into this. It's understanding um, that if I came in, I couldn't just come in and change the sound of the band. Right. The band has an established identity, and that part of that identity is the sound of Joe Young. But yeah. I also didn't want to come in and just imitate his, you know, just using his stuff, yeah, doing his, his thing or whatever. Because his stuff doesn't leave his where it's located at, at this point either. Well, it, it, it's it's just I could gotten identical stuff. Is right. I, I was like, well, I, if I could put my spin on it, retain that kind of signature sound, but kind of do it my way. Mm-hmm. And I was I was a lot more wrapped up in that then than I am now. Um, I'm, now that I feel a little more comfortable with it, like I was trying to figure out like his whole kind of sweeping pick attack, the way he played. Right. I can't do that. Did do uh did the drum any drummers help or uh, with uh, whoever you were playing with? Mm. No, I just I mean it's been different now that Gooch quit and we got. Barry, Barry did the drums on this past thing, but mm-hmm. that was a big difference. But no, I was more just kind of thinking about my own approach. And eventually you have to let go of that and do what you do. And that's kind of what I feel like that I've kind of brought, ended up bringing to the band was, you know, just doing it my way. And and, and, and especially, be, I think to kind of validate, you know, you feeling a lot more comfortable in that role is, you know, when those, you know, jokes were made, he Joe wasn't thinking on that going, oh, well, you know, if he just changed his style, he could fit in any scene perfect. Well, He's he, saying yeah. that Russ Ward, as a guitarist, would do great. Yeah, I think so. Joe, Joe was a big fan of when we had the band Failure. He he actually would come see us play. Yeah. And that was kind of a, I didn't realize that then, but it was kind of a big deal because Joe didn't go to, go to many shows. And um, he would, he really liked what we were doing, I think. He liked, I think what I was doing. Right. It's all potential. You know, he didn't like the Mad Brother Ward stuff. 
Hmm. Or at least he didn't come to it. He didn't, you know, he wrote a nice thing about me one time for Creative Loafing, but that was, you know, he never, I don't think he liked it as much. Right. Which is fine. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't and, hurt and my feelings. I think feelings that was nothing. something that was always right. good about Joe was because if he likes something, if he said he did, you could take it to the bank and be like, he genuinely does like this because he wouldn't feed you. Yeah, a he wouldn't feed you. Yeah, and then he did a. Um, he came to a mongrel show. We did that Jeff Clayton and the Mongrels in two thousand. What was that? Two thousand eight. I actually really love that project. Yeah, it turned out really, really, really good. Um, but. He came, we were doing anti-scene songs when we played the shows with that. And uh, I remember being really kind of nervous about what he might think of that. And um, he loved it. And he, he came and I remember he gave me a big hug after a show one time. And, yeah, it was just being really, really cool about everything. That's yeah. awesome. It was awesome. It's a, it's, it's a... It's a big deal when you get the silver approval from Jeff. It's kind of an emotional memory for me. <laughs> no, and I could kind of work off one of those for you because um, by the time our band, the Fillins, had started playing, we were playing Tremont a good bit, and Joe was working security. And even though he was working security, he, of course, was not paying attention to bands. He was paying attention to the crowd. And there was one of the times that we were playing, and he so happened to have been working that night, and... I noticed for a good portion of the set, he was actually in the audience. Like he wasn't even paying attention to what was going around. He was like up front watching us for a few songs. And that that's one of those things I can also just kind of hold close. And I remember bringing up at his memorial. Cause that's something I, I will still hold to me because again, he, what, like you said, he never went out to shows. He wasn't a very social person. He was extremely happy at home with Jeff, you know, his brother just watching TV and hanging out and being, Last thing you really want to do is go out. So yeah. when, so to actually enjoy it like that, that's something that, that I was I'll before I even joined too, to. wasn't it? No, that was when you were in the band still. The only time I ever talked to Joe was uh, it was after Nanny Scene show, and uh, we just talked about Telecasters for about yeah. ten minutes. And that's the thing is, you know, it, it seemed like a very you know basic kind of guitar player, but it's like he he was very steeped in musical knowledge. Oh um, well, yeah. So he knew how to do to knew how to work the identifiable sound or work within his what some may see as limitations and make the best version. Well, of, the great thing about Joe is that when they started the band, Jeff had it in his head that Joe was a guitar player. Well, Joe wasn't a guitar player. Joe didn't even own a guitar. Huh. And he's like, "You play guitar, right?" And Joe lied and goes, "Yeah, I play guitar." <laughs> it's about like when uh, Alex asked me to play bass. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he, I met, he showed up to a show we were playing. And I was playing bass at the time because our guy had just split. And he was looking for a band to play guitar in. And I wasn't loving playing bass. I wanted to get back to playing guitar. And he was hounding me for weeks. So I, I, I'm I, I, stupidly, I stupidly gave him my number just, you know, to be friends or whatever. He has texted me every week. If you guys need a guitar player, let me know. Finally, one week, I was one like, I've, if I've you play bass... <laughs> I'll hit you up. And he goes, I've got a bass. I was like, cool. Here's the practice bass just to shut this guy I up. I, I didn't tell him I wasn't any good or bad at it. I just said I have a bass. Well, because I'm also sitting here going, if he's a guitar player, he can play a fucking bass. Right. <laughs> There's like some dinky little fucking like shitty bass too. Yeah, you got to, you know, fight the war with the tools, with the weapons you got. <laughs> what? I'm just curious. Yeah, that's just that's just great on uh, Joe's stories. I, like I said, I didn't get to know him all that much, and uh, it's just real fascinating to learn all about that kind of stuff. He was a great dude. Yeah, Joe's one of a kind. Yeah, Absolutely. And especially talking with you and hearing a lot more on your past, because these different stories I've heard in slightly different configurations throughout the years, but kind of putting it in a bit more of a timeline now, and I know that you're writing the blogs and everything, 
But have you ever considered writing a book? Um, not until very, very recently, I thought. Maybe when this thing runs its course, mm-hmm. I can compile it. I don't know they, you know, what, what kind of an audience would exist for a book like that. I think <clears throat> just a general audience. I don't think that you would need to hone in on a specific market, like a punk market or a music market. I think your overall story hits a lot of different interesting elements that would resonate with a lot of people, even if they're not in a punk community. Maybe. I don't know. I just, you know... I, I can't. I, I just don't see anyone caring. <laughs> I just, I'm like, no, you didn't cares? see anyone caring about you know, screaming street trash. You didn't see yeah, anyone caring yeah. about anything that you've done. And look, you know, and you may see it as something small. And you know, I, I'm willing to admit it. People around people like that all the time can become jaded and be like, oh, whatever. I mean, hell, we hang out. A thing I like joking about all the time is there. There's been moments where Clayton and I have talked about a candle, and then we'll laugh and go, "If his, you know, German audience or you know, an audience that you know just oh, yeah. packs the place, they would die knowing that we're sitting here talking about dinner or you right, know, right, or right. whatever the most mundane thing." So, so we can basic. all, so we can all get jaded to we, it. We, but we, we we do that in the van too. Sometimes they'll, they'll get to talking about something stupid, and then the next thing I know, it's like. If our fans can only see us now, <laughs> maybe so disappointed. Because <laughs> we're already, you know, we're already kind of. I, I think we're already getting the reputation as being kind of square. You know, like we just did this tour with the I Hate God guys and stuff, and you know, we're kind of like everyone knows we're, we just want to get packed up and go back to the hotel room. We don't want to party. We don't want to. You know. Sorry. So then do the I Hate God guys still just hang out or whatever, or are they over it too? Um, no, they seem like they're just kind of chill. I don't right. know. Yeah. I mean, they, they hang out, but... Uh, well, Mike just got through a well, see, that heart was the surgery thing. too, didn't he? It was a liver transplant. A liver transplant, that's right. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was the thing I was grateful for, though, because the one time I did uh, do merch for you guys through the uh, Texas run with the Meat Men, I was thankful that you guys were just like, all right, we're done playing. Pack up the shit. We're going to the hotel. I'm like, yay! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> None of your favorite punk rock legacy bands are as cool as you think they are, guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, it used to be, it made it even better. Uh, he's since quit drinking milk, but Barry, you know, we had to stop and get his milk and pastry every night. <laughs> and I thought of like Johnny Ramone, the story is Johnny Ramone always had to stop and get milk and cookies every yep. night. And, and, and Barry was the same way. He had to, you know, he got his milk and pastry before he went to bed. <laughs> now it's just uh, some nice tea before the show. Yeah, he hasn't. He didn't bring his tea thing with him really? anymore. Yeah, I always found that. I, that's always what I would giggle on. Is yeah. just those four or five days we were on the road. He, he backed that thing. little tea yep. thing. I love yep. it. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. And uh, and not to name names, but just talking about you know getting that reputation of being square. Years ago, when I lived in Virginia, I was in a uh, punk band, and we did a tour up the East Coast. We kind of did a all-day van ride up to Jersey, and then worked our way back down to Roanoke. And one of the houses we were staying out with the band we were on tour, and of course I didn't pipe up because I didn't want to, you know, get in an argument or nothing, but the band we were on tour with went, yeah, a couple months ago we, we opened for the Murder Junkies and man, they're just a bunch of fucking posers now. They didn't want to hang after the show. <laughs> they didn't want to do nothing. They're all just a bunch of fucking posers. Oh. And I'm sitting here going, you don't know jack shit. <laughs> the thing about Seriously. it is it's like, you know... 
<laughs> it's just stupid. I, I think it's like posers, you know, it's like the, going into, I mean, this is a whole, going off into a tangent here, but, you know, Merle gets a lot of shit about stuff that people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So yeah. Merle will talk to you if you're cool. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know? and was, the stuff that gets me is like people go, oh, he's just living off his brother's legacy. He's just making money off his dead brother, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Y'all understand that was the plan, right? Y'all get <laughs> that was the way it was set up from the get-go. Gigi had the plan that you know he wasn't going to live. He knew that. Mm-hmm. He knew one way or the other he was going down. And when it was over, his brother was supposed to take it and make as much out of it as he could. That was the plan. It's Anyone like, that sits there and goes, he's just making money off his dead brother. Well, guess what? That was the fucking plan. <laughs> and he created a hell of a story. And that's the thing. Yeah. So. I mean, that was, you know, that was a huge influence on me doing that Mad Brother Ward stuff, you know, was just, you know, that whole attack mode thing. We mm-hmm. had a chance to go see him in Atlanta and we got to talk to him for a long time that night. And that was a, that was a cool thing because, um, uh, all these people were trying to get his attention and stuff. I went with, I went with Clayton, and a little, we had a little group that went down. We had a couple of cars that went down. We were hanging out backstage, and I was terrified. <laughs> I, I thought I was a pretty badass, you know, punk rock guy. Or at this point, I was like nineteen. You weren't ready, were you? I was. I was a white meat, baby faced virgin lost in the woods, and and I knew it. I was like, oh shit, what have I got myself into? I fucked up. And I was like, best thing to do is to sit down and shut up. And so that's what I did. And I'm sitting backstage. I'm hands to myself, mouth shut. You know, and at one point, uh, they bring these pizzas in and they sit them down next to me and it smelled great. <laughs> and I was so hungry and I wasn't going to touch their fucking pizza because it wasn't mine. <laughs> and the next thing I know, Gigi comes over and he, he kneels down next to me. He's like, he goes, you better eat some of this because I can't eat it all. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> you know? And 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 uh, he starts talking to me. He's just, just chilling out. <laughs> and he starts basically giving me a pep talk. And it was really fucking surreal because we had just done that show where I told you we had the fire department and everything out. This was when I had my first band. And um, he's going, yeah, you know, Jeff told me about your band and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know. He was just saying, you know, don't let motherfuckers shut you down. You just keep going. And, I, you know, this just telling me, you know, keep yeah, doing what you up. do. Yeah. And I remember him saying, don't do what I do. Do what you do. I mean, that's and, sound and, advice. Don't do what anybody else and does. I, and, and, you know, and I, and I realized it wasn't about what he did. It wasn't about, you know, the, the, the shitting on stage and rolling around in glass and all that. That wasn't what it was about. It wasn't what it was about for him. Mm-hmm. It was using those as 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 an arsenal, as that means of attack. Going back to what I said about, yep, and that's what it was. And, and he go, you know, and I, basically, I realized, okay, I can still do this without having to. You know, Go full GG. Yeah, oh, I wouldn't have to cut myself or whatever. You know, I didn't have to do like Steve Bader's or GG Allen or you know any of this stuff. I could do something that was me, right? And that's that's how that fed into the Mad Brother War thing. And you know, and I just remember him going, "Do what you do and do it hard." That New England, <laughs> New England accent, hard. <laughs> and and I just thought, you know, looking back, I'm like, how lucky was I to have had that moment because. You get the the reputation of Gigi Allen, and I saw him be 
the quote unquote normal side because he would come through town every so often and just hang and hang and just to be getting away from all the craziness. Yeah. But that night it was in the midst of all the craziness. He just did a show, you know, and he still had the, you know, just the wherewithal for whatever reason to come over and talk to some nobody kid from, you know, that was a friend of the guy that he made a record with, you know, he didn't have to do that. And, um, it was, it was cool. I was, I was lucky to have that. It's cool to listen to those two because I'd, I'd always be scared to ask Clayton about any Gigi Allen stories because I'm sure he he's tired of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, get the impression that it's like he would never wants to do do that again. So I don't get to hear anything from him. I mean, you know, most of our stories are probably not that interesting because, um, you know, he would come here to just chill and decompress. And, and yeah. But but, but see, that's, for but that's, interesting, the, that's interesting to me though. But he had to this me, circuit that he ran that he could do that. What, that he could be normal? Yeah. Not, not that he could be normal. <laughs> or that it's, he actually was. It's, to an it's hearing the stories of him being quote-unquote normal or whatever because everyone always has that opinion or that vision of him just being that wild man 24-7 no matter where he went. Well, I mean, so, he, that could come out. It could. You know? But it's always <laughs> nice to hear the flip side to that being like, no, you, you can still try to lead, you know, you, you can still mind your manners. Well, he was here, he was here like a week or 10 days before he died and he was setting up a talk show appearance and he was getting wound up and he was starting to turn into you know it was like you had the kevin side and the gg side mm-hmm. and he was turning into gg gotcha and i can remember it was, we were sitting at jeff's house we were on the front porch we we're all hanging out and jeff was like oh, i gotta get the trash together and i'm like i'll go help mm-hmm. <laughs> And we went in the back, and we were getting like the trash up, and they run out, you know, just your normal everyday household shit. Yeah. And Jeff said something like, you know, he picked up on it. He's like, "Are you getting a little too jeeged out?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I think so." He's like, "Yeah." And we were both kind of like, you know, so when he left that time, he kind of left not on the best of terms. I mean, they weren't fighting or whatever but it was just kind but of he awkward was a, but it, mm-hmm. he was he was he's been consumed by his character at that point well well kind of drug and, and all that well he wasn't that's the other misconception gg allen wasn't a junkie he okay. uh he was a drunk he couldn't afford drugs he would take them gotcha. if he could get them mm-hmm. but he wouldn't he wasn't you know he didn't have money he didn't he he was a drunk he was a, a whiskey drinking drunk Gotcha. And and that's what killed him. When when he overdosed, he took the heroin because it was given to him. And what was a normal dose for the people he was with was lethal to him because right. he had no tolerance. He didn't take fucking heroin. So the irony is he wasn't a junkie, and that's the reason why he died a junk. <laughs> it's right. it's 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 a fucked up story. But anyway, um, you know he was supposed to get on stage with him. Right? Do you know that story? And I seen was playing at the milestone and Gigi was there. No one knew it. He was in their van and he was with that girl, Liz. If you watch these old talk shows, he, she's with him in these talk shows. Okay, yeah. She was with them and they're in the van. And while Anna scene was playing, they were going to finish the set and then he was going to come out and do the encore. Well, they finished the set. They go to get him, and he's gone. <laughs> and it's like where'd he go well he got in a fight with that girl and took off on foot down Tuckasegee and he, <laughs> he just said fuck it I'm fuck out fuck it I'm out and that was the last we ever saw of him wow so yeah it was just weird <laughs> somehow got out of Charlotte and then and I can remember uh, Maggie who was one of the ladies running the club at the time she's like 
I heard Gigi Allen's here. He better not be here. And they're like, no, no. No, he got the fuck out. <laughs> well, we were lying, but then it turned out, no, he really wasn't here. He was gone. <laughs> he just fucking bolted. And I, and I was, I'm still pissed about that because I could just imagine, you know, he wouldn't have done anything. He'd just come out and done the song. Right. Two songs, I guess, they were going to do. And I can just imagine. I mean, Gigi Allen and the Milestone, that'd have been pretty cool. Oh yeah, but you well, know he I, played uh, the church. Which he was played the, the church street. across the street. That was before, like a year or two before I got into all this stuff, and mm-hmm. I didn't. So I didn't know anything about that gotcha. until much later. And um, so I got saw him. I, I saw him one time. It was in Atlanta, and that was that was cool. No, I always, I, I, like I said, I always find that sort of thing amazing, and you know, I, so I'm learning all kinds of stuff today. It's cool. <laughs> um. Not to, you know, just immediately kind of wind down, but I do know that, you know, you're, you've been slowly getting over, not feeling too well, and your voice is probably hurt, and you've been chatting up for a good while. How are you feeling? You want to keep right. going, or you want to well, wrap I, up? Well, I didn't know if soon. you wanted to go into this I want dividers part, but yeah, I mean, let's, I mean, let's I go I can always come that. back for a part two if you need. I don't, it doesn't hey, matter whatever no you want to do. Hey, limits here, man. It's up to you and I don't know if anyone cares or even I is care, interested. That's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing the stories. No, because we skipped, we skipped like a whole 10 year period. Oh right. yeah. That'd be like a, I'm, we'll be here all that it, night. It's, if we it's need about, <laughs> it's about three months of actual work spread across 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know anything about that. Because <laughs> I did stuff so sporadically. I never, I was never well, what consistent. What caused it to be so sporadic? Just not inspired enough? Yeah. Or just, just like not just, the right people around it, you to the, get it going? All of it. All, all just, combination you know, of just a combination of everything. I what didn't would be have probably that. the biggest hindrance you've ran into across your music career? Has it been you getting in your own way, or as soon as you're trying to get to something, me, someone else on your team causes both, it to but not? I would, I'll, I'll, you know me, I'll always go to blame me first. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. But, but well, no, for being honestly, because it. at the end of the day, even if someone derails you, you know, if you have a, uh, enough initiative, you'll you'll get it back going again. Right. And I didn't always have the initiative. So sometimes you get derailed and be like, ah, the hell with it. <laughs> and you just kind of give up on it for a while. Um, well, why did the, the dividers never really get recorded? Because it seemed like that, of course, did a lot more shows. Because, of course, I got to see the dividers. I never got to see Screaming Street Trash before I was even damn born, probably. Actually, no, it was after I was born. It was after you were born, but you were still a baby. Yeah. Earliest shit I saw, and that was Annie scene, but then it was years after that till I was about 10 that I started going to shows again. I had quit playing kind of more or less, and then, like I said, I got divorced. Right. I thought I might start playing again. And uh, there was a guy that moved to Charlotte. Um, he contacted the Dead Kings first. They mm-hmm. were looking for... I don't remember what they were looking for, but he contacted them asking if they wanted a guitar player. And they were like, no, we got a guitar player. Yeah. And they were like, but Jeff goes, I know a guy that might be interested. And he had yeah, Joe called me. This guy was called Joe dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Joe was, uh, from Texas. Okay. <clears throat> and was a big part of the Houston punk scene. And, um, pretty, pretty known guy in Houston. And uh, done some cool stuff. He uh, was part of a migration that went from Houston to uh, San Francisco and stayed in this place called the Vats. Okay. Kind of infamous punk rock place, like squat or whatever. And where a lot of uh, legacy bands came through on the regular and stuff like that. And he fell in with these guys from a band called Bad Posture who were known for their song, Goddamn Motherfucking Son of a Bitch. Okay. 
and uh, started playing with a couple of guys from that band and a guy, I think, from Crucifix. And then they got Will Shatter. I don't know the exact story on this. I'm I'm kind of filling in blanks with what little I know. He's a guy you ought to have on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, He played uh, with Will Shatter. It was Will Shatter's last band, the guy from Flipper. Okay. And the band was called A3I, any three initials. Har, har, har. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and that that kind of disintegrated. And uh, he moved back to Texas, and he started his own band called Humongous. Mm -hmm. And the singer was Nicky Sicky from Verbal Abuse. And they did that for, I think they still do it occasionally. Um, They ended up going to play some, I think it was a college music journal thing in New York City. Okay. And they were going up there. And they were talking like, we ought to cover a Dead Boy song. And they were like, yeah, we could. And they were t- t- tossing out ideas of what they could do. And when they got to New York, Nikki, by chance, ran into Cheetah Chrome. Coincidentally, <laughs> it was like, Dude, how about that? <laughs> why don't you come to Texas and record this song with us? And she just said, okay. I was like, sure. And they flew him down. And, you know, the story goes, they flew him down. He was supposed to stay for a weekend. He ended up staying for like six months, sleeping on Joe's sofa. (laughs) Damn. But they got to do that. There's a whole, they put out a single, but there's more than that. They basically re-recorded that whole first Dead Boys record. Oh, wow. And it's really good. But it's never been released. Yeah. And, um, Better than the re-recordings that so, they just did. <laughs> but that's what I remember. I, that's how I knew who Joe was. Joe started telling me what he'd done. I was like, I remember that. I'm like, I know who you are, you know? Right on. And so we ended up partnering up and uh, playing playing some shows. Put together a band. Uh, Dave Winecoop played bass. He was mm-hmm. in a band called Fireball XL5. And um, they were around when we were doing our thing. They were more kind of a power pop kind of thing right for lack of a better description accent on the power dave pyro dave he did a lot of pyro stuff back in the old days really (laughs) yeah flamethrowers and and shit like that little (laughs) tiny clubs you couldn't do this stuff today no No. it doesn't sound like it (laughs) he had a he actually had a pyrotechnician license really yeah which back then it was a lot easier to get than it is now after 9-11 it got really hard and he just stopped here's some matches and some gunpowder well (laughs) if you've ever seen any of the video like the old anti-scene barbed wire shows at jeremiah's where they had the exploding electrified barbed wire yes that was pyro day's work really okay and um he's an amazing bass player he's an excellent musician and uh big who fanatic and turned me on to the who and, big um, stage show guy all mofo yeah so we had joe and i had dave and um found this kid andy kraus who now plays in amfms yep and, and he was kind of uh, we we actually before we had dave andy was going to play bass because joe was the guitar player and then i found out andy could play guitar and i was like Mm-hmm. what you doing well yeah you're gonna play guitar we'll get a bass player we'll have two guitar players but that ended up being a problem musically with us because like joe had his style of playing and andy had his style of playing and they could never lock into each oh, other uh, yeah yeah because joe definitely had a lot more of that you know almost kind of a germs approach of guitar playing and yeah, andy a, had a lot more of that yeah. 70s rock influence yeah joe joe was very greg ginn in a weird way and mm-hmm. and andy andy was more like 
James Williamson. Locked, Even Ace Frehley, because he, yeah. he, he almost kind of had that tight sloppiness. Yeah. That Ace one would was have. just one was just reckless, and the other one was like. Tight but and, Andy, yeah, Andy's got that weird thing where you know he has he when he first started playing guitar, he was listening to a little bit of punk rock, but he immediately tapped into that kind of Johnny Thunders, MC Five, and on into you know Dead Boys and all that. So his right. accent was always on the rock, and there's not a lot of you know. There's no heavy metal in Andy, and that's rare right. for a kid his age to not have any of that influence. It's all just kind of a, you know, I, I call him a purebred yeah, rock and roll I would guitar say, player. You know, I would say that I have a lot of the same influences he has, but at the same time, I also have, you know, metal influences, and I have, you know, alternative influences. I don't have a strictly rock thing, so you're entirely Andy, right on Andy that. Andy doesn't have a whole lot of that in him, so uh, I was real excited to find him. And um, so there was different permutations of the dividers and um we kind of leapfrogged over to the other bands that were popular at the time and that caused some friction uh politics yeah we we were i remember we played a show we were like it was like a five band show and we were right in the middle and then before we even got torn torn down off stage uh the manager at tremont came over and was like we want you guys to come open for the casualties and I'm going, well, why us? You know? <laughs> well, See, because cool, because but... she goes, why y'all? Because look at the other bands as why y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was the truth of it. And I was like, okay. And and then we were like, you know, we were we got into this thing that's like, well, we gotta have like the best of everything. We have you know full stacks and all this stuff. <laughs> and and because so because these that. other bands had the like, do you remember the in the early. I guess early 2000s, that guitar research stuff that you could mm-hmm. get it. I guess it was at Guitar Center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these little chintzy amps that sound like. And those fucking like, pod pedals. Yeah, it was just like, it was like, you know, they had all this cut rate stuff in it, which was, I mean, it's fine. It's, you're, especially you're start, if you're, if you're, you're starting, starting a band. Yeah. Sight. And, and <laughs> that's all fine. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying. It was just easy to crush those kids with what we were doing and what we had. Right. And, and, and that's what, you know, and it, that was the attack mode of the, that was my mindset at the time. My attack mode was just to kill them again. It was like having that moment, that epiphany when I, we played the last, one of the last member of the award shows in the nineties where I was like, the band can be good enough. Right. There's enough here that we can at- attack sonically and have a powerful, strong band that, and the idea with the dividers was, I don't care if they like me, mm-hmm. but they're going to damn sure respect me because we're <laughs> going to be that good. And then not me, we, the band, because I was just the singer and had to have a band that, you know, was going to carry that. It couldn't, there couldn't be a, you know, because without the band, what I did was almost irrelevant, you know? And so it had to be, had, the band had to be good. The band had to be good. And there were times where we weren't. And there's times where we did stuff where I get really pissed off. Cause I'd be like, you know, put a lot of time and effort and practice into this and y'all just threw it out the window and, and, did, <laughs> yeah. and did a shitty show. And it was I would definitely like, say know. Dividers were some of my favorite shows because I remember there was an odd period. They only kept it up for maybe a year that I remember, but where the Milestone had this barricade 
at mm. the front of the stage. And all well, it was all right. was like, it was those two wooden planks on the sides of the stage and just like literally one connecting the two. There was like really nothing underneath it. It was yeah. almost like a bar for you to put your fucking drinks on. Yeah. And basically you dedicated to playing the entire show on that barricade. I didn't get, no. I, got, <laughs> I, I just got up on it at one time. I'm trying to remember... My memory of that's real foggy. That was the same night you even climbed up on the speakers. You were going real iggy on uh, that one. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. Because I, 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 I have a video of that somewhere. It's very okay. hard to see. It was during that, uh, it was on the first record that I've gone crazy. Y'all oh, were, yeah, play, yeah, yeah, were, we're playing, playing that, that one in that. And you were up on the cabinets just going nuts for that song. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just, yeah, I don't. And you were up on the barricade for Need It Bad. I remember I, that. I just don't, I don't remember. I mean, I kind of remember doing the barricade thing, but not, 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 again, nothing that I draw in a clear yeah. focus on. I just remember my memory of that barricade show was not feeling good that night. I, I want to say that was a show. I went and ate some Chinese food that day and I was feeling sick on my stomach. Oh, no. But you still <laughs> decided to climb the rafters anyway. All right. R- <laughs> random question. From at least in the mindset of Mad Brother Ward and all these different bands you've been in, what's the best thing to eat before a damn show? Because uh, we've run into that too. Do you not eat? Do you? I eat? prefer to eat after, but I'm sometimes sure you don't have that. Everybody's that joy. Because I've fucked around with a bunch of it. It's like okay, eat the big lunch to kind of propel you throughout the day. Well, you kind of need something. It's kind of like running a marathon. You got to have something to draw some energy out of. But yeah, I prefer to eat light before we play. That's what I normally do. Sometimes right? it, maybe like three or four hours before your set or something like that. Yeah, so. I feel you know because, but I don't know. I guess that would be a different for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was just asking. At least for your mind. This was this was a this was a different time where I was doing the vocal thing, and I, I definitely don't like eating before I did the vocal thing. <laughs> but this was I had ate that afternoon. And I still didn't feel good. I was like uh, something. That's just one of those real tricky things, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not a singer, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just you, you could be about to shit your pants, and no one could tell. You're just a bassist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be there, just standing in it, just being like, well. Got to do worry about this afterwards. Hold your power stance. You'll be fine. Yeah. (laughs) They'll never notice. Just don't turn around. I think, I think though, um, I think Charlotte has a better thing going right now than it has in a long, long time. Even over the past two years. Yeah. And, um, you know, because... I think one of the things that may have done it was the fear of one of the longest-running music venues left on the east coast even yeah was in risk of going under so i think with that it kind of woke up the music scene a little bit more of just being like we need to go see bands i don't know i don't know i think there's some better bands now than there's been in a long time um which is good to see Mm -hmm. because um I, mean, I think like I, 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 I always okay. kind of thought, yeah, I, yeah. Well, they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> they could use a better guitar player. <laughs> you know, sucks. I'm biased on that. I can't even comment. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but um, you know, I do like I like Van Huskins. I like I like Trash Room. I think uh, Mike Beeson's like my favorite guitar player probably right now locally. Right on. He, he's a good dude, and, and he's just I like I like his whole approach to playing guitar. It's just kind of what i you know what i enjoy so mm-hmm. i enjoy that and of course you know um i think obviously tiff tantrum's the best 
front person in Charlotte right now. She's just a beast. Definitely That's up there, hands down, far and away. I, I, and you know, and I'm like, I'm looking at them, going, why, why are, why are they just playing? Why are they doing something? Because they should be a lot bigger than they are, in my opinion. Yeah, and uh, they're just now starting to spread out a little yeah, bit too. They, they, they and, you know, I, I can see that being having some legs and getting some traction. Yeah, and because she is that good, and the band's really tight too. Band, she's got a good band. Because I, I really like Levi as a guitarist too. I talking about riffage and such. Mm. He's he, I, he's he's got a good brain when it comes to some riffage. Yeah. So, you know, there's some good stuff happening for the first time in a real long, long, long time. And um, I like what the Warboys are putting out, too. Yeah. Of course, AMFMs that we were I mentioning. I mean, all earlier. y'all. All y'all. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's strong right now. And, uh, you know, I don't feel like, you know, the, the, the attitude that I had as far as attack, I don't feel like I'm in as a competitive mode as I was when I was a little younger because, uh, I'm seeing stuff that I enjoy, you know, yeah. whereas before I just saw a lot of stuff that I thought was kind of, uh, Run qu- the mill. well, or, you know, I thought their motives were questionable. I thought they, you know, bands were suspect. Yeah. And I don't see that so much now. And I think it's because there's just uh, more of a pure, I don't know, just sort of a, they're doing it for the music. They're doing it for the music it. and not trying to make an image or, or try to make a scene or whatever else out of it. Right. And, and I always said, you know, support bands and a scene will naturally occur. Don't support a scene. You support a scene, you're supporting a social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And that's where yeah. shit gets shitty, you know? Yep. It mm-hmm. turns into fucking days of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no I ain't got no time for fucking that. Fucking joke. Commit to a, commit, you know, and bands should commit to their music first. And that's the important thing that, you know, as long as you're committed to your music, you know, then the rest will sort itself out. And that's kind of where we've always had our mindset, because from day one, we were like, we never want to touch on a political topic. We don't want to tell people how to rule their lives. We're here to give you a release. Music's supposed to be a release. It's supposed to be the exit of reality. I'm not going to tell other bands not to be political, but I do support fully the separation of rock and state (laughs) (laughs) i think i've been sitting here thinking of a good episode title i think that's a great one right there separation between rock and state i I gotta credit dave winecoop for coming mad brother war no dave winecoop he said it (laughs) give proper credit (laughs) but yeah no and i fully agree and Again. But I'm not, you know, it's up to the individual. They got you got to do what you feel compelled to do. Exactly. You know, I I don't necessarily get turned off by politics and stuff, you know, but it's not I'm not going to alter my way or thinking because I agree or disagree with someone. You know, and I think anyone that thinks that people have to think that way, and this goes in that keyboard warrior thing, it's like, mm-hmm. are people so weak-minded that they're going to get influenced by a song they listen to or a, or a meme they see on and the internet? The or, thing is, is the three geez. of us sitting at this table, we sit here and go, that's absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Why would someone do that? The reality is, is that does happen. I People's guess. opinions I don't know. do get swayed by these little images they see. Well, I think, it, I think it, after a constant barrage of it, they might. But I think just in just limited doses, I don't know. I mean, it goes back into that whole idea of just thinking for yourself and, and mm-hmm. figuring out shit for yourself. And I think a lot of people, they don't. It's easier to just be told, you know, you get preached something and you're like, oh, that must be the way it is. And you don't question it and you just run with it. And, you know, 
I, I don't know. I don't have question I, everything. I came, I came up. I, 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 I told the guys this at, at band practice the other day. I was like, you know, I, I I saw this Joe Rogan thing where he was talking about the moon landing. He goes, I bought all in. It was a hoax. Yeah, I've and, seen he, and they go too. and they go. Well, what made you change your mind? He goes. Oh, I realized I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> and that was like, I was like, that's it. That's re- I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And the funny thing is, nobody does. Yeah, <laughs> the problems are a lot more complex than, than these simple little answers we come up with. And, the, you know, and to me, the problem is that we don't really have leadership that addresses problems in the way they need to be addressed. Instead, they try to come up with these big rubber stamp solutions. Mm-hmm. And it don't matter if you're left wing or right wing. That's true on all fronts yeah they want to come up with these easy easy rubber stamp solutions it's like man the problems are way more complex than that we need a lot of a lot more dynamic leadership to dive in and hash this stuff out and it's going to take time it's not going to be easy it's going to get people upset but no one wants to do that no one everyone wants to just make that rubber stamp thing and make their little coalition happy there we go. Mad brother war now, for president. Now I was going to say, now mad brother war for president. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I don't, it goes back. I, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> and that's your campaign slogan. Yeah. Mad brother war for president. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Be the most honest campaign ever. Because essentially you'd be saying what every candidate would be wanting to say. I really don't know. I just want the position. <laughs> Well, man, I do have to say it's been fucking amazing having you on, and I want to have you on often because I feel that there is a treasure trove of just fun stories because we didn't even get into road stories or just fun experiences you've had in all of this. It's just we got to delve into who and what Mad Brother Ward is, and I think that has been an amazing listen. So definitely throw you some homework. I want to have you back in a, um, in a few episodes, maybe given a month or two. Think of some, I don't want to go the typical bad road story thing. Everyone goes down that route. It's something good for you. Think of some very enlightening experience where it's just like, that's something that will stick with you as a positive. Right. Not necessarily the bad fucked up, oh man, this we, was just a train wreck. Because yeah, those are entertaining. We but, talked about some specific experiences. that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I think it would be nice with all of the years between roadieing in your own band and now in any scene, just to have some experiences where you step away from it going, that was something cool on a multiple yeah. level well, thing. Well, that's more easier with anti scene because we really seem to have our shit together, but mm-hmm. yeah, the train wrecks were all Mad Brother Ward stuff. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have a little bit of both. If you got some good ones you'd like to throw out there you think will be entertaining, we'd love to have you back for that. But it's still not the end of the episode yet. It's time for us to dig on into our Spotify playlists and figure out what the hell we've been listening to. What you listening to, son? I don't think you like it. Well, why not? I like this new generation of music. Where did you record this? I bought it at the mall. What that person on your tape has is a medical disorder. All right. Well, Cap, what the hell you been listening to this week, sir? Man, I've been on a motorhead kick this week. Okay. And uh, I went and revisited their, I think it's their best-selling record, uh, 1916. I -hmm. think they won a couple of Grammys off of that one. And... (sighs) To me, it's it's not an awesome record. It's okay, but there are some fucking jams on it too. Like the first half of it, I listened to. I've been listening to on a regular basis this week, in particular, uh, going to Brazil. No voices in the sky, and I'm so bad, baby. I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's a good, you know, it's just your typical Motorhead record, which right. is nothing bad by any means. You you're actually a. How, where would you rank Motorhead in the realm of importance for you? 
Not in the music world, but for you, Russ. Oh, I'd say pretty high. What'd you think of that record? Oh, uh, it's a good one. So I know that sometimes that starts getting in that middle ground of when some people start going, it's a bit repetitive or mm, not as good. I think that was a pretty ever. strong record. It's a strong Motorhead record. There's, but. there's a classic I, example of one of those bands with the five-year thing where you know, they had their five-year run, but I don't think they've ever made a shitty record. Some of right. my favorite releases were the last three or four right before Let Me Die, too. They were pretty fucking strong. I honestly I thought mean, they were good, They were too. always pretty strong. That was a strong band. I mean, obviously, like I said, you're going to have that. I don't think anyone would disagree that era when they had the classic lineup was the best stuff. But I think Motorhead always had strong shit. Because they never, like, changed their sound or anything like that. Yeah, that seems about right. They were Motorhead. Yeah. Same thing with ACDC. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. And Russ, you actually said you don't have Spotify. Right. So what have you been spinning lately? I have been listening to Blue Oyster Cult. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Blue Oyster Cult. Um, just sort of kind of dived into them. I never really paid much super close attention to them. Right. I don't know what got me on it. Um, I like Bob Seger. I've been on a bit of a Bob Seger kick. Everyone can. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and I'm not. Live Bullet's one of my favorite live records. Bob Seger has like six albums or something that have never been issued on CD. And are completely out of print, mm. and that's some good stuff. There's some pretty strong stuff, but I like pretty much all Bob Seger up up until about the '80s, where most bands fell off in the '80s. All those '70s bands, right? But I bought a ticket. I'm gonna go see Bob Seger, <laughs> <laughs> and I found this band called. Uh, am I doing this wrong? I don't no, know the good. methodology. Keep nope, keep going, man. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, by accident, I found a band that I was surprised to like. Um, they made two records about ten years ago, and they were, I think, they're from Canada. It was members of other like bands that I, I don't know their names, but the band was called Quest for Fire, and it's kind of a sort of a stoner psychedelic kind of thing for back lack of a better word from like the, what time period was it <clears throat> about 10 years ago okay all right they made two records the first one's the good one the second one's got not as strong right and i was surprised i liked it i just kind of one of those left field things that you know you're, you're kind of surprised by and then um been listening to a lot of this late 70s punk band called the suicide commandos I've heard of them. I don't think I've ever checked <clears> any of their stuff out there. Really good stuff. Kind of, yeah. kind of poppy, mm-hmm. but not wimpy. I, I definitely want to check that out because I think that's not really. Actually, it does kind of connect to what I've been listening to. But that's stuff I've been listening to a little bit more lately. Is what you were saying, poppy with a bite, not bubblegum pop, but yeah. poppy songwriting Just with enough grit. Snappy and still got hooks. Smart and had hooks would be yeah. a good way to describe it. Kind of like the way the Ramones were, mm-hmm. right? Hooks for days, but um, probably a little more musicianship or whatever. Right, not just power chord based stuff. Right, hell yeah, man! Now that's gonna be a good bit for me to dig into because you've again turned me on to a lot of stuff that I'm really into <laughs> now. So I always take your musical opinions. Uh, I to turned heart. Malcolm Tent to that onto them this trip, and I was shocked that he didn't know who they were. Really, because <laughs> that was something me and Joe Young shared. We both liked them. It's always fun to go. Oh, I'm listening to this, and Joe go, "Oh, 
you know i know what that is he's that's nice. one of my favorites too you know <laughs> oh fuck yeah moments me and joe young shared song that we always made kind of joke with uh, whenever we travel was uh 246 motorway tom robinson band you know that song i don't think so it's really really good we and sometimes if things were just going bad or something was wrong or something one of us would look at the other and just go two four six eight you know (laughs) and just you know try to turn our mood around that's great well for me i've actually been digging back into sweet um and technically, if we're going to go Spotify route, been listening to Desolation Boulevard. But in reality, been listening to Sweet Fanny Adams. Mm, nice. Because there is a different track listing. And I think that album is leaps and bounds better than Desolation Boulevard, if only for Rebel Rouser. Because Sweet Fanny Adams, it shares a lot of the same songs like Set Me Free, Heartbreak Today, Into the Night, uh, ACDC, Sweet F.A., it's stuff like that. It's, That's on both records, but... It's just one of those weird uh, collections where... But Desolation Boulevard has new songs like Ballroom Blitz and Fox on the Run that yeah. Sweet Fanny Adams doesn't have. Okay. But Sweet Fanny <laughs> Adams has songs like Peppermint Twist and Rebel Rouser. And I think those two songs are better than Fox on the Run and Ballroom Blitz. Mm, I love Fox on the good. Run so much. So. It's a fantastic song. <laughs> we used to torture Tom Nally, the guy, the guitar player in Screaming Street Trash. He mm-hmm. hated the song Sweet F.A., that, that synthesizer Sweet break in the middle. And I used to cue it on just that part. So when he would get in the car, it'd turn on the radio, it'd just go right into it. And he'd be like, damn it. I'd do it all the time. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of the song. Yeah, yeah. I've always found it odd, though, that they never really made the rest of those songs that were on that album available online because you can't get it on iTunes or anything. That Sweet Fanny Adams, that album, is only available on CD and vinyl. You can't get it digitally. Oh, I didn't know that. So I do find it odd because, again, the, you can find those songs on YouTube, but like the official purchase or the official stream or whatever, it's just it's just not there. And did, I find that really odd. Did you hear their remake of uh, the Andy Scott suite, the reconstituted suite from about 10 oh, years ago? With the they black did, uh, background with the red font on it that just said hits. Oh, I don't know, but they did the. Uh, I heard a few of those. They did yeah. a cover of New York Groove. Oh, I, I heard, heard that, that one, yeah. What did you think of that? That The new reconstituted suite is hard for me to swallow anyway. It just doesn't sound right. But. I thought the cover wasn't bad. Did you hear their uh, Blitzkrieg bop? No. That was also rather odd. Did you hear the New York groove? I haven't, no, and I don't know about the Blitzkrieg bop. uh, Well, wait, explain to them what they do. Do you remember? I, well, I've listened to it recently. That one's I'm also put on it, there, I'm definitely going to put it on. I'm on my way you go out. Ahead. I, they, they, they throw in the hook from that, uh, is it Alicia Keys? I don't know who does it. That New York. Yeah, that's Alicia Keys. They throw on that. Yeah. Oh, see, I actually didn't listen to it all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am the only person I think that will openly admit going. You know, they did a good job with it. I liked it. Now I can't wait. And that's why I was just like, it's it's a little hard. It's a a cool turnaround in it, and I liked it. Now you know that the Eagles of Death Metal just put out a cover of. Mary J. Blige, and it's very fucking odd. That's what it what? reminds me of. Okay. <laughs> now, you know New York Groove isn't really Ace Frehley's song. Right. right? It's an okay. old cover. Yeah. It's a cover of a 
I forget British, who wrote it. Uh, I don't know. They were a glam band. They were called Hello. Seems okay. like Ace Frehley has the Joan Jett syndrome. His two biggest songs are covers. Yeah, well, he didn't want to. He didn't want to do that. Uh, Eddie Kramer brought that in. Man. That's yeah. right. Man, we can just keep going on all this, right? <laughs> yeah, you go. You can do Kiss, and I'll bore y'all to tears for hours. On that. You, you keep saying bore. Yeah. <laughs> you let, I'm having a yeah, wall yeah, over yeah, here. No, I don't true. think you'd really be boring me. This ain't, this ain't about our listeners. It's about us. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, this has been another awesome episode. Thank you so much for coming in. Even if you're not in and you want to throw some bullshit at us, you can always call the voicemail hotline, which is 513-463-7439. You can tell us we're either fucking up or you can be like, yo, want to talk about this it doesn't really matter calls any time of day any time of night just goes straight to voicemail and outside of that we've only got a little bit of housekeeping yeah just a show at the rim for all of our uh, rim listeners yep may 25th and you've got a show at skylark oh that'll happen by the time this episode drops yes it will so never mind <laughs> <laughs> that just sneaks up fast i keep although, forgetting although i will be having uh, dates booked with uh, kelsey ryan here before too longs and uh, i'll plug those when they're ready sweet and then after that uh, recording on both y'all's ends and everything's just kind of stagnant for now it feels weird I don't like that <laughs> it's about to get real busy though it is do you have an outro for us uh Mad Brother War for President and Jeff Clayton for Vice President <laughs> oh I'm sure Jeff's gonna love that <laughs> what do you mean Vice President Russ is the fucking Vice President <laughs> I piss you off production from the cult of days podcast network everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it <laughs>